Hi everyone, I'm Wendy Muse, creator of the Left Pocket Project, which brings you the history of leftists of color one swipe at a time. And this is the Left Pocket Project podcast. On today's episode, which is an installment of our Reading Revolution series, where we read and discuss works that were written by and or that inspired leftists of color, we'll be discussing Che Guevara's 1964 speech before the UN known as Colonialism is Doomed. Uh, For those of you who might be unaware, the speech in full is available on our Patreon page, and that's patreon.com slash leftpoc. Everything there is free and open to the public. There's other readings there from our Reading Revolution series as well that we highly suggest you check out if you get a chance. Um, And also, if you're there, if you swing by and feel a little bit generous, feel free to give us a dollar or more per month um, to sustain our podcast and the project itself. Now, um, beyond just that little bit of housekeeping, I just wanted to give a little bit of background on the speech itself. Um, And just know, of course, this is not a comprehensive um, discussion of Cuban history or Cuban revolution or Che Guevara, who he was as a person, or any of that. Um, This is a little blip in time that I'll be talking about just briefly uh, to give you a tiny bit of background. But, um, you know, for those of you who are interested in learning more, I definitely suggest checking out checking out the show notes. Um, I posted some books and video, um, some of which actually relate directly to the speech, and some of which are related more to some of the things that we discussed while we're talking about the speech in this episode. Um, but yeah, just getting started with that. Um, first thing to keep in mind is that the speech itself is in response to and in support of ongoing decolonization efforts around the world, particularly in Africa and Asia. If you're talking about the mid-60s, early to mid-60s, you're talking about a lot of revolutions that are ongoing. Um, But in particular, they're ongoing in response to the attempts by colonial nations to clamp down and maintain power. So you see places like Portugal, for example, using alternative means to maintain their colonies throughout Africa. Um, And one of the means that they pursue through the UN, actually, is to change the names for Um, the colonies. So instead of calling them colonies, they call them territories, or they try to shift uh, the meaning of certain certain terminologies that they use for the colonies. Although they obviously still continue to operate as colonies, and the people who live within the colonies still face the same degrees of oppression, despite the name change. So you see places like Portugal and other countries, France, for example, England even, um, that are using language and sometimes slight Uh, forms of reform through the colonies to kind of maintain power, um, at least in order to keep their global image a little bit cleaner. Um, And, you know, because my research has to do with Portugal, so that's why I often go back to talking about Portugal and Brazil um, and the African colonies that Portugal ran at the time. Um, But there's certainly a lot more colonial activity going on beyond that, um, even in the, in the mid-60s. So the Portuguese colonies in Africa um, didn't gain independence until the mid-70s. But what you see is there are a lot of there's a lot of activity going on throughout Africa because of some of the decolonization efforts that were happening in the 50s and the early 60s. Um, and 
some of these countries, um, like places in the like the Congo and some other nations, um, gain their independence earlier on than some others. So as I've just discussed in the episode, you see several of these countries helping one another um, in terms of logistics, material needs, um, even theory and discussions about politics and governance. Um, they, they lend, uh, you know, armed support in some cases. Um, so there's there's also uh, a lending of space, literal space, uh, to talk and discuss things outside of the the realm of the colony and the reaches of the colonial officials. Um, so you have countries like Tanzania, um, Congo, uh, Senegal, other places, Ghana, that are helping each other. Um, Egyptian officials as well, who kind of, you know, at the moment where they overthrow British rule are like people like Nasser, for example, are incredibly influential, um, in these movements to, to overthrow, um, the yoke of colonialism from, from European countries. So it's important to keep in mind that all of these nations are speaking to one another. Um, and part of that process is what Che Guevara is interested in and is also pursuing during this speech. So he talks a lot about how Cuba, as a country that has overthrown U.S. rule, that's overthrown, um, you know, the Spanish in the past, how they can use their position as a country that's recently and very newly, you know, very recently overthrown uh, imperial rule, how they can also serve as support to these other countries that are pursuing their freedom. And also um, as a kind of uh, it's, it's a congratulatory message if, of sorts to the nations that have already gained their freedom. So it's just sort of encouragement um, on the one hand to these places. But at the same time, the message is also one to colonial countries that basically were coming for you guys, you know, um, and to the UN as well in terms of their complicity in oppressing people around the world. And so it's it's a kind of um, multifaceted speech and it's one that I think really is important in our current times. I know it may not seem like it because we're dealing with coronavirus and all these other things, um, but it's important to keep in mind that even as our country is dealing with coronavirus and we have a global pandemic on our hands, we're also still engaging in imperialism, which is dangerous and scary. And I think this speech serves as a really important reminder that there are means of um, support and camaraderie and solidarity that we can extend to people around the world as our country continues to engage in violence in those places. Um, and that we shouldn't forget the need for that sort of, um, again, camaraderie. I also want to say that, um, you know, despite what we're seeing going on abroad by the U.S., we also see a very dire situation here in the United States. We're having a, a severe economic crisis. The pandemic continues to go without end, it seems, and without any sort of um, administrative interference to stop it. Um, and people are kind of out here on our own. We're really, we're really having to support one another and think of creative ways to help where the government has fallen short, very, very short, actually. Um, and so I think that the the other aspect of the speech that's important is this notion of solidarity and the need for us to really be independent in many ways from otherwise formal um, institutions as we sort of seek a solution um, for the current situation. And so I think that, you know, Guevara is 
making a very clear reference to that kind of behavior and the need for it when you're dealing with a government that's that's not really on your side. Um, so there's a lot more to the speech. Obviously, we go into that. We break down several aspects of the speech. Um, but I just wanted to kind of lay the quasi-historical groundwork um, and the thematic groundwork for it uh, before we get into discussing it. So again, if you want to check it out, please go to our Patreon page, and that's patreon.com slash leftpoc. You can also find information about this and other aspects of the series, other things that we've read, other aspects of the podcast, other interviews that we've done, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, by going to our Facebook page or our Twitter page, and you can obviously find us by searching for it, leftpoc. That's L-E-F-T-P-O-C. Um, the last thing I want to say is just that... Um, the speech is very easy to understand, so if you do have a chance to read it, definitely do that. It's pretty short as well. It's about 20, 24 pages or so. Um, so if you have a moment, check it out. Don't take our word for it. Actually go and read it um, and, and have a look at it because I think that like many of the other things that we've read for the Reading Revolution series, it really lends itself to our contemporary moment despite it being a message from the past. Um, so with that said... I want to get on with the show. If you will, uh, by the way, actually, before I get on with the show, excuse me, before I get on with the show, I just wanted to remind people who may not have seen it, we are looking for someone who can do, someone exclusively to do our transcripts for the show. Um, we've got some restructuring going on um, behind the scenes. So we just want someone who can do solely um, the transcripts. We need someone who has some experience in this area or who can at least um, make a clear effort in it and do so efficiently. Um, and we need someone who can do uh, a good job within 72 hours of a turnaround, so three-day turnaround. Um, you don't need to have a college degree. Someone had asked me on Twitter if they needed uh, certain degrees or whatever. Definitely not. All we need, of course, is the basics. So fluency in English, quick turnaround and accuracy in the transcription. So if you are interested, please send your uh, information to leftpocketproject at gmail.com. Um, and just know also that the pay is $25 per podcast hour. So the transcripts, um, let's say, would be for a two-hour-long podcast. Your pay would be $50. Um, and we also have occasional staff meetings for which we also pay by the hour at $25. So please feel free to contact us. Um, send us your info if you're interested. And uh, yeah, with that said, on with the show. Hello, Richard. How's it going? Hello, hello. Uh, it is going well. Uh, we're on the verge of a lot of different things happening. Uh, Supreme Court justice and super spreader event and, you know, the Supreme Leader getting COVID, recovering <laughs> from COVID overnight, apparently. <laughs> I mean, as well as well can be in the hellscape that we call this country. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like we're both still alive and kicking. So that's that's a start. Um, and I hope everyone that's out there listening is doing well and that you and your families are staying safe and healthy amid this forever, never ending crisis that we have going on of COVID-19 and, you know, economic despair and uh, misery and all of that. Speaking of which, by the way, I just thought I'd add it's kind of it's perfect that we're talking about. Um, you know, a triumphant statement against colonialism, at least, you know, a hopeful statement of colonialism's end by a socialist leader and his comrades or to his comrades at the same time that we're watching our country sort of fall apart because precisely because it refuses to help people 
who are suffering under capitalism amid a pandemic. So it's timely because, you know, as of today, Trump basically after quote unquote recovering from COVID uh, after getting like world class private treatment at Walter Reed and now a full on hospital being set up in his uh, suite in the White House. Um, not that aside, he said that he's not going to provide any assistance to people for COVID relief until after the election, in which case it means he's never going to provide any <laughs> any assistance to, to people for mm-hmm. COVID relief, win, lose, or draw. So it's fitting. Because, I mean, I'm just thinking, like, we're still sending an exorbitant amount of our tax dollars to uh, mil- the military and all of its bases to operate around the world and ain't seeing any <laughs> of it back. <laughs> you know, like, we're not getting a dime back. And yet we're spending all this money um, on the military and like to make to maintain its these war games that the U.S. is playing that have very deadly consequences, and yet we're now at you know two hundred thousand plus people who have died from COVID, and a lot of that has to do with the fact that people have been forced back to work. Um, so of course there are. There, and sorry, my baby's screaming in the background, but she's okay. Just for everyone, she does. She makes these sounds when she's getting dressed, so like <laughs> she just screams a lot. She's fine though. Um, but yeah, I mean, we have we have a situation on our hands where, of course, there are people who are careless and reckless and don't care and like screw your mask and all that crap. And those people are terrible, but they're learning and copying the, the people at the top who are telling them that. Um, but then there are also people who are like doing everything right and trying to survive. And yet they've been forced to go back to work because they're not getting any assistance from this government ever. Um, So what are they going to do? Just starve to death? You know, like, what are we supposed to do? So a lot of people are getting sick from that as well. And unfortunately, are already in a position where their health may not be the best because they can't afford health care, because health care here is exorbitantly priced and inaccessible for a lot of people, um, or job dependent, depends on the type of job you have, whether or not you even get insurance. I mean, it's just like a whole shit show. And unfortunately, people are dying at very large numbers. Um, because our government doesn't care, and yet we're supposed to see socialism as the enemy, apparently. But capitalism is doing just great. Mm-hmm. And meanwhile, while the capital is uh, basically one big COVID party that's not just uh, affecting the the leaders that are being irresponsible, but the frontline workers that have to take uh, service the the day to day things that go on in the capital are also coming down with uh, infections as well, and it's. It's a bit, it's very concerning, really, in that at the top echelons of power that such recklessness is being demonstrated that the trickle-down effect to people imitating that behavior at home has had devastating consequences and puts a lot of vulnerable people in jeopardy because they think that their leaders are uh, demonstrating behavior that they can follow safely, and it's quite the opposite. Right. I mean, I I feel like, you know, shout out and prayers to all the people who have to work in the White House or who serve them food. Or I know I saw today that um, two of the people who are part of the cleaning staff in the White House, like the housekeepers there, have COVID now. And we know for a fact that they're not going to get the same treatment that Trump did. And now, you know, have unfortunately risked their lives unwittingly. And it's not like they've signed up for that, you know, when they said we're going to be housekeepers at the White House. I don't think anyone was expecting to then for that to be a potential death sentence because the person who occupies it doesn't give a shit about his health and then certainly doesn't give a shit about other people's health. So 
I mean, that's yeah. the thing with me. Like, I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt. That's the thing that bothers me the most about COVID is like, it would be one thing if it's just like you, right? Like if you get COVID and there's no way to spread it to anybody else and you get sick and like that sucks and then you might die, but you did what you could do. But COVID affects other people like really drastically. And you could be in a room full of people, let's say five people. And if one person has COVID, three of those people may not have any symptoms if they get it. And two people might die like suddenly. I mean, there's, it's just all over the place. And I, I hate that we have to depend on the willingness of others to cooperate with protocols, which have also been like pretty mixed, like the way they send out the messaging from, from the White House or from this administration is all over the place. So people half the time, don't, if they're not following this closely, don't even know what they're supposed to be doing to protect themselves or to protect others. But I just hate that you know, in a country that's so like individualistic that we have to depend on the goodwill and compliance of others to survive at this point. Yeah. And meanwhile, the Senate has basically canceled most of its business and, and is no longer working, but people are expected to continue to show up to their jobs. And it just also reflects the kind of one-sided nature of the approach to protecting people and that those that even like if they are responsible to protect themselves, they still aren't going to be looking out for the populations that elect them and that they're supposed to represent. And, you know, I, on that note, I think back on um, Edna Bonham, who was one of our guests a few months ago, um, kind of at the beginning of all of this. And she had mentioned you that her mother works as uh, she works, she does cleaning at a hospital in South Florida and she was, uh, you know, assigned to a COVID floor. It's not like she chose it, but she was put there. And then now all of a sudden her job just goes up, goes from cleaning hospital waste, which is already hazardous as is. But then on top of that, now with the risk of a deadly disease, and she actually got COVID. Thank God she has recovered. She's doing well. Um, you know, so shout out to Edna and her mom. But it's just so scary to me that like there's so many people who are dealing with this and just have no social safety net, no support from the government, no support from their jobs, you know, and, and they're they're just being sacrificed for in some cases the I mean, just literally the carelessness of others. Like I I think that's what bothers I think again, as I said earlier, that's what bothers me the most. But also the other part of it is like the carelessness spreads. So just like the virus, it's sort of like, if it's not just a solitary thing, if you say you're not going to wear a mask and you're a person with power, people are going to follow your lead, you know, and your, your supporters are going to also say, we're not going to wear a mask. And I mean, for that asshole to go up to the White House, take his mask off, even though he still has COVID, he has not shown a negative test or anything. So he still has COVID. And like, he's basically declaring like, you don't need to wear a mask ever and i'm you're going to be fine if you get covid you're going to recover in a couple of days and then you can go about your business and i think people will go into it thinking that and as a result i mean they already think that but some of these people what they're doing is they're infecting others or they're getting infected themselves and then they're putting exponential weight on the healthcare system like we don't have good healthcare infrastructure here anyway, by comparison, you know, we talk about other quote unquote industrialized countries, but like the fact of the matter is they're, they're not staying at home when they get sick, you know? So like, they may not want to wear a mask, but they're going to haul ass to the hospital if they get, if they get the slightest inkling that they have it, if that they have COVID and they're going to put other people's lives at risk. And as I said, many people who did not sign up for this, who don't have any sort of support 
if they were to get COVID or if they almost inevitably get COVID, you know, it, it's, it's just, it's completely, I don't know. It's, it's almost like medieval in the, in the, the lack, complete lack of, of humanity being provided to these people. It's, it's astounding. Well, and the stress that just this in general has been putting on the healthcare system is enormous. And that the, the workers that are being asked to show up, what's happened is because of the decrease in the availability and the production in the, the actual doing of elective surgeries and the kind of uh, profit driving aspects of healthcare, the a lot of hospitals have responded by essentially cutting staffing and limiting the staffing to just essentially the people that are going to be there treating COVID patients for long 10, 12, 14 hour, 16 hour shifts and uh, for, you know, uh, many days on end so that they're working obscene hours and they've been pushed to this for months now. And so like it, the, a lot of like various hospitals have had to deal with large amounts of their staff just reaching breaking points because they're being pushed so hard. And like, and oftentimes they are contracting infections too. And if they're just not being symptomatic, they're being encouraged to continue to show up to work. Like is often the case in lots Mm of uh, jobs uh, outside of this pandemic. Right. It's, it's really just a mess. I, and you know, the other place, and we can stop talking about this soon. I apologize. I'm like, let's talk about this really encouraging document, but first let's talk about really depressing, our really depressing present. Um, but like one of the things that I've been following too, pretty closely, even though I am not a sports person, I've been super fascinated with the NBA bubble and what's going on with the NFL and also college sports and high school sports. So like this situation to me is completely insane in which they are continuing with sporting events continuing even though they're doing some social distancing in the audiences but for them in the in the stands but for the most part you know they're not and you look at like because when I'm doing work on the weekends right I'm in my den I have the tv on but like on silent it's muted but I'm just it's just like background imagery right and I'll look and I'll see college high school and professional football players playing and they're right up in each other's faces no one's wearing i mean they on some of the professional players have like a visor that they use when it's like sunny or whatever but they're Mm -hmm. not using it for covid and i'm like why don't they just make like a face shield type thing for them even though face shields don't work that well but it would at least it would at least help a little bit because you know if you're breathing right in somebody's face or like yelling you're going to be releasing droplets and so it would at least limit some of that exposure for them, right? It would like cut a little mm-hmm. bit. It would help a tiny bit. I don't expect them to wear masks because like, I don't know about you, but just like walking the dog and like going uphill and stuff with a with a baby stroller, like it can be pretty rough in a mask. Like I'm not going to lie. And I'm an asthmatic. So like breathing in general is like tough for me sometimes in certain weather. But like if I'm wearing a mask, it's not the best. So I can't imagine running and playing football and doing extremely strenuous sports with a mask. So I get that. But they could at least have some sort of shield built into their um into their their helmets so none of them have those or some do but like very rarely and then none of the college and high school students have any protection whatsoever i had read that there was um a problem on college campuses where even though they're expected the students are expected to get testing through the school's health center so that they can keep track of everything a lot of the athletes are being sort of advised off the record to get their tests outside of the university facilities and therefore it won't show up on the university stats 
So it means that sometimes players are, if they're asymptomatic, are playing while they're sick and then getting other players sick. Um, I know for sure this is happening with even the NFL. So like the NFL, I know the other day, Cam Newton got COVID. Mm-hmm. Or it was announced that he got COVID. I'm like, Cam Newton's the freaking quarterback of the Patriots. <laughs> it's a big deal. And I just said to myself, like, I know that they're making a lot of money and whatever, but especially for the high school and college students who are not making any money, it makes zero sense. Because if you've hinged, if you've like kind of, I don't know, like, put yourself, put all of your eggs in one basket in terms of being an athlete, right? Like that's what you want to be. That's what you're going to do. And then you get COVID and let's say it negatively affects you. Like if you have really, really adverse physical effects, your whole life is done. Like even if you survive from what I understand from the people who are like the quote unquote long haulers of COVID, the people who have had severe lung damage and stuff. I mean, how are you going to be a professional athlete if you can't breathe? If you're like on a freaking ventilator, to, to breathe, like you're definitely not going to be able to run the the whole length of a football field. I, I mean, I don't know. It's it's crazy to me that they're not thinking about these things. And I know that like the professional athletes are testing, but we saw that that doesn't work with what happened with the White House. Like there's a lot of false negatives because at the beginning of this pandemic, the government did not look into properly regulating these, this testing situation. So there's anybody and their mother can, can form a test and sell it and then use it and like the results are not accurate so the whole thing is a mess like i just oh my god I'm, oh, yeah, I'm it shock, is a mess. You know? no i was <laughs> just gonna say that it's like the nba was able to kind of isolate the because they were already in the playoffs they had less teams and players to deal with and they were a bit more meticulous in their planning they were able to essentially isolate the players mm-hmm. and and limit the kind of interactions so that it was uh, less likely to have any sort of kind of super spreader events or anything. But with the NFL and especially with high school and college, there's been no ability to do that. They're still traveling even. Mm-hmm. And so it's it, like, it just piles on piles on piles of increasing the chances of contracting COVID for individuals. And then for larger spreading events that could impact entire campuses as we've seen in various colleges and then those can spread out to the community and then once they or and or once they're at the college campus if you try to send people home you can be putting them into you know homes with an increased uh, vulnerable population mm-hmm. that isn't uh, like can't deal with it <clears throat> in the way that perhaps it don't have the kind of success rates that the college age students have with covid although it does still present plenty of risks Oh, yeah, for sure. And there have been, you know, depending on the health status of that college student, I mean, if that college student has respiratory issues, if that college student has diabetes, if that, you know, fill in the blank issues, they're still at risk. And so many Americans are sick precisely because we don't have a decent healthcare system here and it's definitely not an equitable one. And so just there's so it's like one big snowball of everything within itself, like getting worse and worse and worse. And then I just, I don't know, like I'm having trouble seeing an end to this, even with the vaccine, which we know we're not all going to have access to. People are not going to be, people are not going to trust the vaccine. Like I saw just again today, the U.S. is messing, or the government is messing with the CDC and they're messing with, they're trying to like do some things to to limit the, um, like to to rush the vaccine process. And I'm just like, oh my God, like this is, 
and the, <laughs> like it, out. yeah just like a bit of context <laughs> is like there's a great deal of just food products and other products that much of the world especially europe just doesn't allow to be sold in their country because mm -hmm. of the risks that it presents that are just a-okay to sell in the united states mm -hmm. so uh, i understand people being skeptical of something that would only be approved of by the united states for sure right and then on top of that we have you know the flu coming back with a vengeance because it's almost winter and fall and winter time is when it's flu season here and so like a lot of doctors are concerned about the obviously the pandemic, but then also the smaller like epidemic of, of flu in this country and around the world, to be honest, whenever it's winter. Um, so, you know, I, I've already gotten my flu shot. My baby's going to get her flu shot. My husband got his flu shot today. Like everybody's got their flu shot, but then what, you know, like what if, I, I don't know. And I, I just feel like I'm going to be you know, I was joking and saying, I'm going to be that that old lady who's like still wearing a mask like 20, 30 <laughs> years from now. And everyone's going to be like, why is she wearing a mask? And I'll be like, look, you don't understand. Like, <laughs> we went through a pandemic and then then we had a like because the, they're saying now that, you know, normally this is something that happens every hundred years or so. But considering all the environmental stuff, and I know you're on this, Richard, because you're big on like environmental stuff and like climate change and whatnot like they're saying that we have a likelihood to have yet another one in a much shorter time span than normal and so like i said i'm just going to be wearing a mask for the rest of my life like i'm okay with it you know you can make fun of me all you want like just like <laughs> i remember they made like in the u.s i will never forget when SARS was happening and then like shortly after SARS and you would see like East Asian people still wearing masks. And I even remember like I would see whenever mm -hmm. I'd see people coming from like Korea or China, they would, they would wear a mask on the airplane. They would wear a mask in the airport. There were some people who were just wearing masks walking around. Like if you would go to Chinatown, you would see people just wearing masks. And I was like, well, that's kind of weird, but you know, makes sense, whatever. And I remember people making fun of them. Like, I remember, mm -hmm. I will never forget it. I feel like on, you know, nighttime TV and stuff, comedians and what I were making fun of Asians um, for doing that. And like, they were right, though. <laughs> you know? like, mm -hmm. They were right. And they look at, if you look at how they're, fear, they're faring with COVID now mm -hmm. versus most of the Western countries, they're doing a lot better. Like, let's just be honest. East Asia's kind of, even though, the presumption is that it originated in China. China did a much better job in terms of, you know, PR and awareness of the population. But then certainly if you look at places like South Korea, they've had their momentary outbreaks, but they've been very, they've been contained very quickly. Whereas we just, we, we've just like, we're just doing like full on, you know, eugenics at this point, like social, social, um, what's it called? Social Darwinism, like survival of the fittest. That's it. Yeah, no, uh, Tom Morello, uh, Basis for Rage Against the Machine, tweeted out that the White House has recently had more new cases of COVID than New Zealand, uh, mm -hmm. Taiwan, and Vietnam combined. Correct. <laughs> that is correct. So we're doing great. <laughs> <laughs> Everything's fine. Everything's fine. Um, on that note, let's talk about colonialism being doomed because I want to see that come to fruition my goodness um like can we get a re-up on that colonialism and crisis situation uh because mm. whew, uh, i would like to see an imperialism is doomed imperialism and crisis kind of moment because i feel like we're in it right now and maybe you know 40 years from now we can look back on it and be like i'm old enough to remember when the u.s fell apart and we got freedom i don't know i don't know i don't i sh 
I shouldn't say it like that because obviously we live here too. (laughs) (laughs) We live here and I don't want to see the people who are already suffering suffer more. So I don't, I want to be clear that like, that's not what I'm saying. I'm not one of those people who are like, I don't know if you remember at the beginning of COVID, the kind of like eco-fascisty stuff that was like, oh, you know, the earth is like reaping its revenge on the on the on the people yeah. who like destroyed it. And I'm like, yeah, but like most of the people dying are like black and Latino workers who don't do as much to destroy the earth as like rich white European and American businessmen. Like get the F out of here with that. Um, so not quite that. I'm not saying that, just to be clear. But what I am saying is I would like for America, the empire to be done. I want that to be done, right? I want America to succeed in terms of supporting its people, but I don't want it to destroy other countries or destroy the livelihoods of people in this country because, just because, you know what I'm saying? Like that's, that's pretty much the the philosophy right at this point, just kill to, to kill people um, and to take their resources. And I would really prefer that America, the empire, TM, be done. America can continue, but we have a lot of work to do to get it to the place where I want it to be. And so that's why when I say I celebrate the downfall of America, I'm not talking about the people in America. I don't want to see people suffer. I'm saying I want to see the end of American empire as we know it, and we need to replace it with something else. Um, mm-hmm. And that's what I'm working towards. So just so we're clear, right? Because I know people are like, oh my God, like, you know, sometimes when you say stuff like that, they're like, what are you like? You're, you're a terrorist, or you you're support China, or whatever. You want to be taken over by another country? I'm like, no, that's not what I'm saying. That's not what I'm saying. I don't want to be taken over by anyone else. I want us to operate in a way that's more equitable and fair, and doesn't harm people in order to to support one another. You know. And I mean, as reckless as we are often uh, in, in the United States, generally uh, with our rhetoric about the people of other countries, I wouldn't be like. So, like, I would understand if people held the average American to account for, you know, the American crimes, but that's not really the impression that I've gotten reading from international socialists is that they delineate the population of people from the actions of our empire. And right. so, like, and so, uh, even the quote unquote enemies of the United States aren't our enemies, they're enemies mm-hmm. of our empire. Right. Like and, usually they're like, you guys are okay. Y'all are fine. But we're, we're talking about the guy in the white house. We're talking about your senators or representatives who are like voting against your interests on your behalf. So like we might vote for someone who claims that they're anti-war. I mean, look at Obama, right? Like Obama went into office claiming to be anti-war and then he took that mandate and did a whole bunch of war. <laughs> so mm-hmm. in some cases we're trying to do better. I think some people are have, have it in their hearts to want more from our government um, but at the same time, when they make those decisions, they impart that responsibility to those ser- those like supposed representatives and servants of the people, but then they don't hold them accountable. And in many ways, it's hard for us to hold them accountable because the response I always get is like, well, you guys should protest more. And I'm like, okay, but we do. Like some populations do protest and then they kill us. Like, so mm-hmm. it's not like we're not doing anything, but perhaps it didn't get over to the, in the news where you live, but we are protesting. We are, we are speaking up against our government. The issue is whether or not they give a shit that we're doing those things. And oftentimes they don't because there's no money in it. You know, they, they know that they can kill as many of us as they want, but if they're making more money in the weapons industry, they're going to keep doing that no matter how many times we go to the street and protest. Um, 
So, you know, we have, I think some people are, some people understand that. And I'm not trying to, just to be clear, I'm not trying to make excuses for Americans. I think a lot of Americans are terrible. I know because I've, I've, I am one and I've lived amongst (laughs) these people and I've had to deal with and hear their nonsense, you know, like I get it. I understand why other countries, people are mad at us, but I also am in a position where I'm like, and I'm not trying to be one of those people who are like, not all Americans. No, no. I am fully aware that a lot of Americans, the grand majority of them are terrible when it comes to especially foreign issues. But at the same time, we have to be careful that we're not victim blaming in some cases, because sometimes the people who are, really about it and like want to help and that are also oppressed in their own way in their own communities in this country they're not necessarily the ones that should be catching all the blame if that makes sense they should catch some blame to be sure but i think sometimes when you when you are fighting for more and you're being disregarded or you're being shot down i can't blame you for what this country as a whole is doing you know Mm-hmm. And one of the things that's come up for me recently is just like uh, I heard it characterized essentially as separating myself from American empire in a way rhetorically as well. And one of the kind of articulations of that was sometimes when talking about U.S. empire, uh, take ownership of it or like I take ownership of it or share blame in it where it's uh, not appropriate or whatever in, in the way of like essentially akin to uh, a slave you know with the uh, what's wrong master we sick you know mm-hmm. like kind of like an adoption of a, a shared interest type of thing that doesn't actually exist there and so that like separating oneself through the rhetoric of you know referencing american empire as separated rather than claiming ownership like our or my country mm-hmm. and things like that and it, it's it's difficult as you mentioned because the like separating the concept of uh, um, like U.S. homogeny uh, and like the kind of the empire of America from the peoples of the nation and then also how that plays into uh, the relationship between indigenous peoples and the various peoples that uh, occupy the land now. Right. And I think the other problem too with U.S. hegemony is the fact that like we take it, that's the whole point of it being hegemonic, right? Like we take it on without even realizing it, right? It like seeps into you. And I think we have to unlearn it. Life is like a process of unlearning all that stuff um, and trying to do so in a way where we're not continuing harming, continuing the harm to others, you know? Um, I think the other, the other, and we can like, we'll be done with this soon. We get you guys, we promise. Um, <laughs> but but it is, I think it's fitting because again, we're this, this text that we talk about is about, you know, coming out against colonialism and pretty strongly. So I think it's fitting that we're talking about the, the ills of this country uh, as an opener. But I think that like, one of the things I always think about when it comes to accepting Americanness or being from the U.S. is the difficult sort of like weird space that we're in, you and I both actually, of as, as Black Americans, right? And as descendants of slaves in particular in America. So it's not like we just like willy-nilly came here like all of a sudden, you know, it's, it's definitely, uh, we don't have, I guess we should say like, I, we don't have a homeland in quite the same way as someone maybe who immigrates to the United States. So, and it also depends on where you immigrate from, right? Cause like if you're immigrating from anywhere in the Americas and you're a black person, so if you're coming from like Jamaica, Cuba, Brazil, f- you know, fill in the blank country, Haiti, if you're coming to the United States and you're a black person from any of those places, 
you also came over here for most likely as a slave, right? Or your family came over back in the day as slaves. Um, not came over, but were forced here, dragged here, just to be clear. So everyone mm. knows where my politics are. Okay. Anyone anyone who's like coming to this podcast new, just understand that I don't see slavery as like an immigration process. Okay. Like <laughs> as our US history books still try to portray it. It was human trafficking and violence. So just so we're clear. Um, but we were brought here, forced here, trafficked here, and then so disconnected in many ways from our roots. Like we don't have, many of us don't have a specific place we can call home. And even if we can kind of establish that in some way, even that is not necessarily clear because there was so much trafficking going on within Africa to get to the Americas in the first place. So that being said, I mention all of this because like, if you're in this weird space where you don't have necessarily a homeland, but then you also are not at home where you live, you're excluded in many ways, you're killed, you're reduced to like, you know, excess population or surplus population, just fodder for fucking police and fodder for police, fodder for the military, um, fodder for the state, right? What is there to be proud of with regard to this country? And I think sometimes people try to fill in the, with the sense of a lack of homeland, they try to fill it in with America being our homeland, right? Which I don't blame them for. I mean, I understand the impetus to be like, okay, well, since in, in, in lieu of like a homeland or a source, you know, a source position geographically, I'm going to just use America as that. And I'm going to be really proud. I'm going to be really proud of America. I'm going to go into the military. I'm going to do all what I'm supposed to do as an American. I'm going to be baseball, hot dogs, and apple pie American. And I think that that unfortunately also has extreme risks. And we saw this so, so clearly this week. Um, I'm, I am forgetting the man's name right now. So you might be able to help me with this, but there's a young black man who was recently murdered by police um, just like a couple of days ago or something. So he was Jonathan breaking Price. up a fight. Um, yes, thank you, Jonathan Price. He was breaking up a fight. And then he was tased in the process of that by police. And then police saw him convulsing while being tased, which is a normal biological response to being electrocuted while standing. And then they claimed that he was coming for them, which of course is not true. And then they shot him to death. So the ironic, like so disgusting, scary part about this beyond the very obvious is the fact that this man was a supporter of police. He was apparently he wore a Blue Lives Matter bracelet, for God's sakes. He was pro-police in, in every way, even with everything going on and very clear awareness of what's going on in this country. It's not like he lived under a rock. He knew. And I just want to say I am not blaming this man for his death. So, again, so we're clear. I have to, I have to put caveats on everything because I think sometimes, you know, people make assumptions without knowing my full political background. Mm-hmm. But like. This man was murdered in cold blood by police, and yet he was a police supporter. This is what I mean when I say you can support empire all you want. That doesn't mean empire is going to support you. They're going to still see you as some black dude who's going to be a threat to us and we have to kill. And even if he's not a threat to us, his blackness alone is enough of a threat for us to to legitimize murdering him in cold blood. And I think people need to be really, very, very clear about this. Like, especially I'm talking about black people who have, like, we don't owe this country anything (laughs) at all. But on top of that, like, we are frequently its victims without sometimes recognizing that we are 
at times reinforcing its norms and reinforcing what America means by antagonizing other people who are also suffering under America's rule and under America's violence. And we have to be very clear that like the side that we think is going to help us is not going to help us. Like we're on our own at this point, you know, like if we're going to unify with anyone and get support, it's going to be other people of color. It's going to be other marginalized groups. It's going to be other people who have, you know, have either been trafficked here or who are the original people from here. I mean, we have to be very clear about this empire not being for us, despite all its attempts to make it seem like they are, like they're including us in the process. We're only being included because we know how to shoot. We know how to kill. We know we're being trained to help them in their process of violence. And we just have to, we have to renounce that. Like we have to just straight up say, this empire is not for us not going to be by us like we really have to i think be clear about clearer about that sometimes um because it does sometimes it does seem like things are going to work out for us it feels it feels like there are little glimmers of hope here and there like oh there are black policemen or oh there's a black president or oh and it's not that's not how it works you know we have to be very careful about discerning when things are for us and when they're not and they're usually not for us no, and that goes all the way, like, that's a historic lesson that goes all the way back to the founding of the country where, you know, Black people were encouraged to essentially attack uh, tribes in order to obtain land that then was later not just stolen from the tribes, but then stolen from the Black people that helped uh, the white people uh, acquire it, essentially. Mm -hmm. That's right. So, yeah, we just, we have to be, I don't know. I don't know how I got onto this. Uh, oh, I know, because we were just talking about, like, who's to blame for American empire, right? And like how I don't want to blame the wrong people, but at the same time, I don't want any of us who are technically its victims to then become part of the process of victimizing others. And that goes for other groups too. So just so we're clear, like everybody can catch these hands. If you're a person of color who supports this empire, if you're, you know, a person who's an immigrant, if you're a person who whose family immigrated here, if you're an indigenous person or whatever, and you find yourself supporting this country and the way that it's operating now, there's something wrong. Like you're not connecting a dot somewhere. Um, and I think that there, you know, I think the alternative is going to be harder for us to get to for sure. And it's even harder for us to think of in our minds because we're brainwashed from the beginning to think that like this country is for us and the way it operates is for us and on our benefit or on our behalf, you know, for our benefit. But I think that we have to be very clear, um, you know, and that takes time. It takes learning and, and understanding these things. But it, it happens. I think many of us have the realize, realization at some point that there's something wrong. And the way we deal with that is often a personal process. It can even be a public process, but it needs to be dealt with um, so that we can get to the point where we're finding, you know, solutions to this. And we're actually fighting back on a regular enough basis to, to see some change. Um, on that note, I wanted to turn to our reading for today. So this Reading Revolution episode is about uh, Che Guevara's uh, 1964 speech to the UN um, in New York. And this is coming at an interesting time. So he, he delivered it in 1964, like I said. It's around this time where you start to see um, some many countries actually around the world that were former uh, colonies gain their freedom, um, often through violent means, which is why I think it's important that we're talking about this, because there's there's often this debate about whether or not peaceful protest is the answer or violent protest or riots or looting or whatever is the answer. Um, and I think that it's 
clear from history, at least from the evidence that that's been left in history, that um, a little violence goes a long way. <laughs> you do have to actually fight uh, sometimes, often, to get what you need uh, to get your freedom. I don't. Oftentimes, freedom is not won just by signing a bunch of papers. It's won through actual war. And so, in this case, um, you know, Che Guevara is responding to the the successes, if you will, of many countries in Africa and parts of Asia that have gained their freedom. And it's an interesting, sorry, my baby is screaming so much. <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, she's, she's probably like just literally getting her clothes put on or being fed, but she like, she, the second she gets annoyed, she starts screaming. Um, but it's, it, the timing is, is great because you start to see sort of like a decade after the Bandung conference, which was held uh, by many countries that sort of formed the non-aligned, ended up becoming the non-aligned countries. Uh, so what we would call, quote unquote, third world countries who came together and said, you know, we're not going to pick sides here. We're going to operate independently from these sort of Cold War limitations that are being set on our diplomacy and our trade and all of that. We're just going to do our own thing, guys. And we're not going to pick sides. And we're going to go with the country that helps us um, and that gets us what we need. And we're not going to do it at the expense of our own people. Um, and so, the you know, we start to see that the sort of these sorts of movements with like the Bandung Conference, and then later um, the independence movements. And what's great about this time period as well is that in the early 60s, you see many countries coming together and having their sort of like own uh, miniature regional UNs, if you will. So like in Africa, there's a conference uh, that they have regularly uh, that starts in the 60s. And there's one, or there's one, I think it starts in the 50s, but then there's definitely one in the 60s, early 60s, when many of the countries have found their independence or gain their independence. Um, and what's interesting about this, these conferences in Africa, at least, is that they often host delegations from countries that are still colonized and they manage to meet and talk about what can be done um, and they help one another and sort of interact with one another, sometimes off the record even, uh, to find ways to liberate the people of other places. So it's really fascinating to kind of think about and talk about um, these moments in time and in our histories where we have countries actually collaborating to fight back powers that have been harming them for, for decades, if not centuries. It's, it, I don't know, it's inspiring, especially as we look out to the horizon now and sadly see so many of these countries having been recolonized uh, by way of tourism, by way of imperialism, by way of capitalism, by way of war. Um, and kind of trying to think more positively about, or optimistically, I should say, about what could be in the future if we manage to work with uh, people in other places that are also oppressed. Yes, and in the United States, it's also a, a very turbulent time. 1964 is basically the the early incarnations of protests against Vietnam, some of the first uh, public burning of the draft cards took place in New York. Uh, there was uh, lots of student protests and uh, there was also connections were being drawn between U.S. empire's behavior in Vietnam and South Vietnam and uh, domestic behavior in the South. And so the, 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 the Muhammad Ali had a famous line about, uh, about Vietnam and there's just a, a lot of, uh, things happening both uh, uh, internationally and then even within the United States. Uh, the Socialist Party of America is started, organized a first or helped organize one of the first nationwide protests against the Vietnam conflict as well. So there was, uh, it was a, 
an exciting time in general as far as kind of the the momentum and the feeling that something significant was changing at this moment. Absolutely. And so it's great to have the, you know, the sort of, not sort of the literal record of what was being said. Um, I think so many of the speeches, not only Che's, but many others from this time period are super fascinating because they're marking many of the things that you mentioned. Um, and even like when, remember when we read the little red book and there's so many references from Mao as well to Black people in the United States, um, you know, it's and Indigenous people in the United States. It's really fascinating to kind of see these check marks. You know, like okay, like I'm he's he or she or this this revolutionary leader is acknowledging what's going on in these countries. And oftentimes, you know, I think this is this this discussion is sort of posited as like, oh, this is just one other country's diplomacy to get favoritism and kind of so discontent in the other country. Um, they're just remarking on their racism there because they want to start shit. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. oh, they're just they're trying to like pick at it. And we hear this so much coming back with regard to the dialogue, the, the discussions on Russia, right? Like, I don't think the average Russian is like, oh, let me sow discord in the United States. You know, like I'm going to remark on their racism when there's definitely like racial strife or ethnic strife in Russia too. Like that that shouldn't be underrepresented. I mean, it's real. Um, and throughout countries that are quote unquote enemies to the United States, of course they have internal problems. This is like reality, right? This is the world we live in. But I think it's fascinating that on some case, in some cases, you do see very, very, very real efforts being established to show not just like um, not just something to sow discord or to to kind of interrupt the politics or the political machinations of the United States, but also literally to form forms of solidarity with oppressed peoples within these empires or colonial states, right? There is, um, I think Cuba in particular, and again, why this is so fitting, offers a very clear example of this because they don't just like say, you know, we support what they call, you know, the Negroes in the American South or America in this speech, but they also literally serve as a space for American, Black American exiles from Jim Crow and from these, from the disastrous racial policies in the United States. And I think that it's, you know, like they're not just walking the walk, they're talking the talk, they're doing both things. Um, And while there's some discussion about whether or not they did enough to deal with racism on the island, that's a separate conversation and certainly one that's valid. And I think that people need to be honest about, sometimes I know that people kind of like, overlook that right like when you see mm-hmm. discussions about cuba online especially a lot of people kind of downplay that because they're just kind of taking what the government says and using that but i think it's important to note that the government has also acknowledged multiple times that there's still a fight against racism on the island they're still trying to deal with that and there's certainly i mean i think the way i've seen it framed is that you know we have we have a furthering of racism on the island because there's still a reliance in some sectors like tourism on capitalism or some form of, of you know, like economic um, or financial stability by way of, of income acquisition. There is no, there's no way around it. If you have an industry that's built to serve, for example, European tourists, that you're not going to encounter racism within it. You know, so they've they've one of the examples that's always given is like hotel staff tends to be light, lighter in skin tone 
um, tends to be from upper class backgrounds or slightly higher back uh, economic backgrounds than others. And that sometimes is a problem of the private industry, right? It may not, it's not like the government is picking these workers. It's the company, the hotel company that's picking these workers. But if you think about the origins of racism on the island, it's from colonialism. It's from slavery. You know, it's not something that the Cuban uh, revolution created, but you can certainly say that they did a lot to try to eradicate and certainly lessen that racism. But that racism is not something that's unique to, <laughs> to you know, the Cuban revolution of 1959. That's not, and I, and I, as I said, I certainly see efforts being implemented by the government past and present to try to lessen um, some of that racism. So I just want to make, make it clear that like, I'm not trying to be an apologist for Cuba. On the contrary, I'm saying there are these problems, but those problems didn't start in the, in the 1950s or 1959, but they're certainly exacerbated, much like here, by capitalism and by, by private industries and whatnot. Um, that I think if we did a little more regulation of, did a little more interrogation of, could start to see diminish a little bit. And from my understanding, uh, since I've been engaging in, in more of this uh, this information, is that the Cuban government hasn't really they haven't pretended that they haven't had these issues even exactly. back even back at this time. Uh, exactly. I when, during preparation for this, I watched a Face the Nation interview with uh, uh, Che, and he was talking on there about uh, how Castro and he had both acknowledged that they had had that they had made mistakes in like redeveloping the agrarian uh, economy in, in Cuba absent the the kind of imperialist and corporate interests that had that they had routed out and so it was like it wasn't as if they were pretending that everything was sunshine and rainbows and that they never made any mistakes or that they that there wasn't things for them to work on as they were developing them and not in the kind of uh the I, I would say in many ways, not in the rhetorical way that is often used in the West, but in a, a sincere recognition, but also uh, a recognition of the conditions that they were uh, facing. I mean, one of the things that came through to me in the text was just how critical of a role Cuba played as a barricade to freedom for not just Latin America, but just for the concept around the globe in that standing right on the doorstep of the like largest empire and with vicious intent they were able to resist the the interests that were trying to capitalize and take over and that manifested in, perhaps not always in the but like agrarian failures or in political failures and so on and so forth but that it has to be born in the context of where they the role that they played internationally and regionally right and it's it's interesting that you bring that up too like i think that they're they definitely served like a literal and symbolic meaning um, as sort of a beacon of hope actually for so many other countries that were trying to um, assert their sovereignty and gain independence at this time. Um, and, you know, the, it's this tiny, it's always so fascinating to me because it's a tiny island that like beat back the United States multiple times. Um, and in large part continues to in many ways, right? Because there's so much nonsense going on with the Trump administration in terms of like 
foreign policy with Pompeo. I mean, it's a total mess. And he's just constantly picking at the scab um, and, and still pushing anti-communist rhetoric, making this boogeyman out of something that large, in large part doesn't really exist in a lot of these countries, uh, at least not in the way that they think of it. And they're trying to, to you know, make Cuba, Venezuela, and other Latin American countries out as the bad guys. But I'm like, the bad guys, y'all, like look in the freaking mirror for God's sakes. How many Americans have died on your watch and you're talking about Cuba being my enemy, Venezuela being my enemy? Are you kidding me? Like get the heck out of here, you know? So Reese, oh, I was Yo, just going to say, re- re- recently Bolsonaro uh, was attacking Cuba for sending doctors uh, to Brazil and providing critical aid in what is obviously a COVID ravaged country. And right. is like, and Cuba does that around the world and sends medical professionals around the world that have uh, incredible expertise and have been invaluable in fighting COVID again around the world. And ra- that's seen as, you know, it's not a deed of goodwill at all from Western powers. It's only seen as uh, propaganda and so on and so forth is like uh, most of the country, like in particular in, in with Bolsonaro's case, he offered the Cuban ex- like offered them that they could stay if they wanted to. And they're all going back. Right. Well, <laughs> so this has so many layers too. So at the beginning of his administration, he was completely antagonizing the Cuban doctors. So they're there through a program called Mice Magicals, which is a Brazilian program actually, um, that technically is sort of like the Peace Corps, but in, like domestic. Okay. So they have, they recruit doctors to go work in uh, like Brazilian doctors, for example, to go work in rural neighborhoods or rural areas, excuse me, rural regions um, and underserved regions of the country where there may be doctors, but they immediately leave to go to other countries or they leave to go to other regions of the country. So they have like brain drain. Okay. So what they do is they recruit uh, doctors from other parts of the country, but oftentimes they have a shortage because doctors from, let's say the South, which tends to be wealthier, predominantly white, you know, more developed, they don't want to go to the regions of the country that are sort of out in the backwoods and less developed and less, less quote unquote modern. Okay. So, and there's also a whole, there's, there are layers of racism and classism wrapped up into this process as well. Um, so that's when, you know, with, I believe it was under, if I'm not mistaken, under Lula's administration, where he brought in, he's, he, you know, he said, let's have Cubans come as part of the Mice Magicos program um, and to help us, you know, and so there was an agreement signed with both governments, everything was going fine, they were getting paid you know, by the Cuban government and, and they were getting wages that were, you know, fine for where they were living. I saw multiple interviews uh, of, of the doctors uh, in the, the Cuban doctors that had gone to Brazil that said they loved working there. They had great experiences with their patients. You know, like these are not actors. These are not people who are there to spread propaganda. I mean, they literally, they did so much for those communities. And those communities also were interviewed in some of the stuff that I saw. And they were talking about how much they appreciated what was done and how they had dealt with racism and all sorts of nonsense from Brazilian doctors who didn't want to help them. And then had much, they had much more positive experiences with the, with the Cuban doctors. And so what's fascinating is that at the beginning of, or not fascinating, it's sad, but at the beginning of his administration and, you know, in the lead up during the election as well, Bolsonaro kept saying, oh, you know, they're, they're, they're operatives and they're trying to take advantage of us and this and that. And they're going to like turn our country into this communist hellscape, blah, 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 blah. And so eventually the government, the Cuban government was just like, 
all right, then we'll just, you know, people can come back. You know, we are going to open the doors for people to come back because you all are antagonizing um, the people who were there as volunteers at the end of the day. And they were also making, Bolsonaro was trying to make it sound like, you know, the Brazilian government was paying so much money out for these people, but the Cuban government is who pays them. So like, <laughs> you know, what are you talking about? <laughs> so it was just, a, it was a mess. And I, and I can understand, I mean, I know that he's re-upping all this nonsense because he wants to take the, he wants to take some of the heat off of himself because he, like uh, Trump, who's his, his, you know, partner in crime and all this nonsense, and also someone to whom he looks up very much or looks up to very much. Uh, he's let a lot of people die on his watch. Like Brazil has one of the highest uh, COVID infection and death rates, just like the United States. So it's fitting that, that they're both antagonizing, um, you know, socialists and communist countries and leaders and, and populations as the bad guys. I want to just say really quickly, too, uh, before we keep going into the text, but uh, one thing that I want to have on one of my friends who actually does some work on race in Cuba as it relates to the arts uh, arena, kind of like art and dance, um, and sort of the things that the Cuban performers had said about racism vis-a-vis, you know, American dancers, activists, and and artists. Uh, But what's fascinating is that there is, even even the people who are like, okay, there's some racism in Cuba. When you ask them about other things, they're like, yeah, but our needs are being met. At the end of the day, our basic needs are being met. We know that we go to we can go to the doctor, and we're not going to die because we can't afford the treatment, right? There's a degree of like the burden that is lessened by these sort of financial issues and and sort of social safety nets that are being met. Um, in ways that we don't have in the United States. So not only are we economically deprived here and we're dealing with racism and all sorts of issues, but it's like compounded on itself. So if you're looking at like a load, right? Like let's say one group of people has a hundred pounds, one group of people has 60 pounds they have to carry. Which load are you going to want, right? You don't, I mean, it's shitty to carry either load, but one load's going to be a tiny bit lighter. And I think that, that when you, when they, when I've read, you know, or listen to interviews with Cubans, even Cuban exiles who are black and who have said, you know, Cuba's not perfect, but there at least were certain needs that were being met by the government that here you don't have. And that is a problem, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And that's so. despite the United States best effort to deprive them from being able to meet those needs in mm-hmm. hopes that they could turn the people against the government that's providing for those needs in exchange for a government that's not going to provide for those needs to produce uh, profits for U.S. corporations. It's just completely asinine. Right. It just says it's further proof that like we're fucking up, we're messing up and things can be done here in a much better way. Yeah, even the entire, oh, sorry. I was just going to say, even the entire <laughs> world recognizes that U.S. Uh, sanctions are just ridiculous. It's a unilateral situation, but in order to do business in the United States, you have to adhere to, to them. And so it excludes a lot of uh the excludes cuba from having access to a lot of the global market right and then speaking of global markets i'm going to go back to the text um <laughs> so one of the one of the purposes that che seems to have as he asserts repeatedly throughout the the speech is that he he's kind of trying to make this more than just a meeting right he wants mm. this to be more than just a call like more than just a speech but he sees it as a call to arms and he says 
Um, so for those who are following along, by the way, I just copy pasted it into a Google Doc. So the page numbers that I'm giving you guys, it's from my Google Doc. So they may not be, um, you know, all that faithful to the actual text, depending on how you convert it to text. So anyway, on page two of 24, he says, quote, um, we we should like to see this assembly shake itself out of complacency and move forward. Um, so he's talking about sometimes like he sets it up by talking about the fact that like some countries have, you know, little disputes with one another, little spats here and there. And he's basically like, y'all have got to get over this so we can get work done. So he says, we should like to see the committees begin their work and not stop at the first confrontation. Imperialism wishes to convert this meeting into an aimless oratorical tournament instead of using it to solve the grave problems in the world. And we must prevent them from doing so. And so it's really interesting because he's trying to he, he wants this to be an encouraging speech, but he also wants it to be one of the steps in one of the steps towards action and one of the steps towards action to defend themselves um, from U.S. imperialism and European imperialism in general, as Cuba has done. And so he recognizes the symbolic importance of Cuba, but he also recognizes the ways and often comments on throughout the text, the ways that Cuba can be both example and material support for these other countries, um, if not now, certainly later, and that they will provide. Because he mentions, he talks about later in the text where he's like, all these other countries in Africa are getting their independence and we feel bad for the people who are still under Portuguese rule like Mozambique, Angola, Cape Verde, et cetera. And we're here for you guys if you need us. You know, like he kind of, he puts, mm. and, and later they do actually help them a lot, which I can go into in more detail later. But he kind of puts a pin in the fact that like, we not only support you guys breaking free from imperialism on paper, but we support you materially too. And we, we, we're, you know, our word is our bond basically. Yeah. I picked up on a lot of those same things and that the opening with kind of a, an acknowledgement and welcoming of uh, African newly formed or newly recognized African nations to this kind of assembly, but also how imperialism was intended to turn it into basically just oratory rather than uh, really dealing with the, the substantive issues that are present among all of these different nations. And it reminded me of like just generally U.S. politics and seeing as how the U.N. is modeled in many ways off of kind of uh, the U.S. political machinations. Uh -huh. it, it seems fitting that then there's that parallel in their desire to score rhetorical points against each other while accomplishing very little for the people that they're supposedly there to serve. Right. And it actually is. I mean, the UN is like straight up a U.S. Uh, it's ironic though, because the U.S. is constantly trying to defund it and disinvest from, divest from mm -hmm. the UN, destroy the UN. Uh, but it was like, it came out of um, Woodrow Wilson's League of Nations, you know, it was like a spinoff of that. And uh, has that and like NATO, all these things are kind of, you know, like U.S., creations us europe creations more or less um and now that you know in the 60s you start to see more people from the third world really asserting themselves and that's when you start to see the u.s being like ah no nah, we're not cool with that let's you know like we're not gonna mess with them anymore um once they start to get some power once other countries get some power within it then the u.s doesn't have any interest you know it's kind of interesting um but it, on that note, he also has a section a little bit later on, on page three, where he talks about the U.S. and like how the U.S. is allowed to operate in the on the global stage and how other countries are expected to operate. 
Um, and this, I, I think we see this so much on the U, in the ways that the U.S. behaves at the U.N. Um, but he says, for example, on page three, that, um, you know, of all the problems we have to deal with, one of them, of, of these groups within the General Assembly, these specific countries, one of the things we have to deal with is, quote, the peaceful co is, sorry, is that of, quote, peaceful coexistence among states with different economic and social systems. Um, he says imperialism, basically, uh, particularly the United States imperialism, has tried to make the world believe that peaceful coexistence is the exclusive right of the great powers on earth. So I mentioned this just because he's, this is where he goes into kind of talking about the non-aligned movement and how that was formed, um, but also the fact that, like, we always, like, the U.S wants to talk about peace on earth and peace this non-violence that but then all they're doing all day long is instigating violence is inflicting violence is you know exacerbating pre-existing violence that exists in these countries um and he brings up timely you know the bombing of cambodia the bombing of laos uh, and the, the war in vietnam it's like people are just minding their business and the u.s invades the place like for what you know to what end and so i think that there's a I mean, I can appreciate his his calling out the sort of double standard that happens with the U.S. because I think, as I mentioned earlier, I think there's a parallel double standard that happens in which the U.S. constantly wants to assert itself on the global stage, but then doesn't want to pay dues to the U.N. or like doesn't want to help fund the WHO or whatever. They're always trying to divest from something while still wanting to maintain, maintain control over it. And they're still wanting to be the ones to say, we need peace or later on you hear so much democracy, right? But all they're doing is, it's like the second they say that, it means they're doing the exact opposite. They're trying to destabilize countries. They're trying to remove the, the prospect of peace from that country's future. No, absolutely. And uh, that the imperialism quote that you mentioned right there was one that I picked out as well. And I what I saw there was that, or what I interpreted as is basically that the U.S. sees the superpowers or the places where justice and peace exist, and these other supposedly lesser nations are relegated to being battlegrounds and stripped of their natural resources and the people stripped of their humanity, and that that's peace. And it mm -hmm. reminded me of kind of uh, MLK's uh, negative peace, where essentially the violence of the status quo uh, is accepted as just the way things are and so resistance to that is seen as disruptive rather and and violent rather than the violence that is that is being resisted in, in of itself and uh i think part of that what is seen in that is that the u.s looks out on the world and sees enemies and threats everywhere but when you look at it, the we mentioned earlier the vast military spending in the United States. I believe approximately ninety to ninety-five percent of foreign military bases are U.S. bases, mm -hmm. and we have you know people stationed throughout the world. Twenty-nine bases in Africa. Why does the U.S. have military bases in Africa? For what? Like, and it is just just like the the as you mentioned it's it's to do all the things that they're accusing all everyone else of doing and essentially being everything that they accuse the rest of the world of being by the way shout out on that point to um black alliance for peace who had the other day um some online forums and whatnot about uh basically in in hopes of divesting from africon basically like laying out laying it down the the ground 
uh, foundation, I should say, of what AFRICOM is, like as an educational sort of teaching, but also declaring the need to end and close all these sites in Africa um, that are satellites of the U.S. military. So just a shout out, I'll include some information about them and this project that they're doing uh, in the show notes. But um, yeah, I think you raised some important points there in particular about the ways that the U.S. military and U.S. empire operates. But it just every time I hear these sorts of discussions, um, it makes me think immediately about the police and how the police, the way they operate in the United States are a direct parallel <laughs> to the way the U.S. military operates and U.S. imperialism operates, even down to the rhetoric. And I keep saying I'm going to like do a meme about this, but I haven't gotten around <laughs> to it yet. But they're just, even the language, you know, like the sort of what was he or she wearing, what was he or she doing of police violence, right? Where they say, well, that person was posing a threat. Well, they don't really pose a threat. Or that person reached for my gun and they didn't reach for their gun. You know, like there's so many lies that play out in the process of policing that sound exactly like what you hear in U.S. uh, imperialism abroad. You know, they say, they always try to create a bad guy Um, someone who did something to them and therefore that legitimizes what they're doing to that entire country when that, that leader or that group didn't do anything to them or it's the wrong country. Like how many times have police gone into the quote unquote wrong household or, you know what I mean? Like there are just so many parallels um, and kill the wrong people or kill people who weren't a threat to them or, you know, shot up a whole house or a whole group of people when they're technically after one person. Like they're just so, 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 so many parallels. And I think it boils down to the fact that like, our lives don't matter. The lives of people abroad, Black and Indigenous people in this country, immigrants, fill in the blank. Whoever's reduced to, to the dehumanized other at that moment, they want to remind us over and over of that. And it becomes a system that that sort of puts this stuff in stone. So even though we have, quote unquote, neutral institutions and neutral laws, they find a way over and over to um, assert and implement those laws in a way that harms us. Um, and I think it makes we need to question the purpose of law and, and the way it operates. But likewise, you know, we have to get to the point where we start to question international diplomacy um, and often unilateral, dipl- quote unquote, diplomacy that is um, implemented by the U.S. It's very it's very similar, like even down to the language. No, absolutely. And the quote from the text that I think uh, kind of captured that for me in some ways is uh, it says, quote, as Marxists, we have maintained that peaceful coexistence among nations does not encompass a coexistence between the exploiters and the exploited, the oppressor and the oppressed, which I interpreted to means essentially that it, it one, that if there's no peace without justice for everyone and that injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. Also, kind of uh, reminded me of a Sada Shakur's, uh, like mm-hmm. that the fundamental goal of revolution must be peace. In that, like, but also that peace doesn't mean pacifism. Right. That peace doesn't mean acquiescence to a global hege- uh, uh, hegemony of imperialism. It doesn't mean that, and that it it, ex- it explicitly means that those things don't coexist. It means that the peace is absent of that imperialist power or that imperialist threat. And it's fitting that you bring up Asada Shakur for obvious reasons, but for those who may not know, you know, she's she's lived, she's a former, um, well, she's a black activist from the United States, former Black Panther, if I'm not mistaken, right? Um, and she is currently living in exile in the United in in Cuba, actually. Um, she says that she was framed for a murdered police officer 
Um, and if I, and please correct me if I'm wrong, by the way, because I'm not an expert on Asada Shakur by any means. Um, but this is what I know relatively of her story. And so now she's been living in Cuba since what, the 70s or something, the 80s. So uh, that's, uh, I believe, uh, surfaced in Cuba in 84 and was part of Black Liberation Army. Thank you. Yes. Thank you for those corrections. Um, but Black Liberation Army, did they have anything to do with the Panthers or were they more, um, were they like an offshoot? Uh, she was also like, she had been a member of the Black Panther Party as okay. well. That's what I thought. Later. Cause I was like, I wasn't she part of it. Yeah. Okay. Um, so anyone who wants to check out more info about Asada Shakur and please don't take my word for it, actually go read about her and do a better job than I am. <laughs> learning about the specifics of her story. But yeah, she is someone who um, left the United States and fled to Cuba and has been basically protected there in exile since then. I know Chris Christie and several others have been trying to get her to come back, uh, force her back to the United States uh, through extradition. And they were unsuccessful. <laughs> so she's still there. She's still in Cuba. I believe even Bernie Sanders was uh, yes. like, linked to uh, kind of uh, supporting that cause. And so it just Sadly. it's a reminder. You know? <laughs> Sadly, yes. And it's something that was brought up often when people were, you know, charging Bernie Sanders of also being an imperialist on top of the his support of the wars in uh, Bosnia and Herzegovina and these areas, uh, the bombings, at least, of Serbia. Uh, that some argued could have been handled through other means without violence in the same way, without like state violence. Um, Cause while there was, I'm not one of, I'm also, again, I have to do all these caveats and I hate that, but this is what happens when you start talking about global issues and like real world events. <laughs> so you have mm. to make sure that you're clear. I am not, I repeat, I am not a denier of uh, genocide in Bosnia and these areas. So I recognize that what that happened. And I actually, you know, my part of my in-laws family is from that region of the world and know, you know, like pretty intimately some of the violence that happened there. So I am in no way denying that. But what I am saying is that there has been some dispute and discussion over whether or not an actual bombing campaign um, that was carried out by the Clinton administration um, in the 90s was necessary to get Milosevic to stop um, what he was doing and to stop some of the violence that was happening on the ground. So that is what I'm saying um, was supported by, that bombing campaign was supported by Bernie Sanders um, and that some people have brought up several times to, to in their arguments basically that he is pro-US imperialism in some areas. Which is um, really just to say that the within the electoral left of the United States, there's still a healthy support of imperialism, I guess my point. Right. That's right. No, there absolutely is. Um, and we see that as well in discussions of what happened in Venezuela, discussions of what happened in Bolivia, discussions of what happens in Cuba, like how many people who are quote unquote Democrats uh, and believe in quote unquote democracy are totally fine with uh, a very conservative limited U.S. Uh, engagement with these countries and violence in these countries, quote unquote, you know, like supposedly uh, for our benefit, which it's not doesn't I haven't I haven't seen any benefits yet. I don't know about you, but mm -hmm, I'm waiting yeah. on my, uh, my kickback check from all the wars that are being fought in my name. <laughs> and I was assured that, you know, they were restoring democracy to Bolivia and that elections were pending very shortly and we're almost out of the year and <laughs> still waiting on right. them. 
And note, everyone who's listening, this is obviously sarcasm because we knew from the jump that it was a coup. It was very obvious. Mm -hmm. It was like stamped from the beginning as a coup pretty much. And people were just like, oh, some people were pretending that it was not. Um, So speaking of of these things that the ways that that the U.S., you know, asserts itself, um, I... I was fascinated by your commentary earlier about the sort of reach of U.S. violence. And I think we often, when we talk about that, we we mention, you know, um, violence that's happening that's like material violence, right? So bombing campaigns, economic deprivations through sanctions, et cetera. Um, but one of the things that, he, that Che gets at um, in this speech is he talks about the ways that it also asserts um, or exerts a type of cultural violence um, that, that tries to remove or water down or limit the, the local cultures, the indigenous cultures of those regions that they're attacking. Um, and one of them is, uh, you know, he mentions Puerto Rico and how Puerto Rico as a U.S. quote-unquote protectorate is often used as a, a source for, um, you know, cannon fodder, uh, by taking the soldiers from there. So similar to things that the French Empire did to Africans and Caribbeans in World War One and Two, where they had they literally recruited them through conscription to fight on their behalf um, in these other uh, theaters of war around the world, um, and then claim that, you know, they were going to get something back from it, and they never paid the people who did. Um, I'll leave something in the show notes about that, too. There's so many, like, little end notes and footnotes here, but really fascinating history that you should definitely check out. But there's a book by Greg Mann, who's a, he's an Africanist historian and it's called Native Sons. And it's about this process of like depriving um, French colonial subjects of their rights and the re- monetary remuneration that they were promised. And in some cases, even citizenship, which is what we do here as well, where we say, if you go fight a war for us, you can become a citizen. And that's that was taken away from those people and deprived from those people. Um, so something that, that Che goes into here is the fact that like the US uses and recruits Puerto Ricans for those types of purposes. But on top of the material violence they commit to Puerto Ricans people and their bodies, they also deprive them of a native culture. And they try to destroy that culture um, by you know, forcing U.S. culture onto those people. So he says, for example, the North Americans for many years have tried to convert Puerto Rico into a reflection of hybrid culture, the Spanish language with an English inflection, the Spanish language with hinges on its backbone, the better to bend before the United States soldier. Puerto Rican soldiers have been used as cannon fodder in imperialist wars, as in Korea, and even been made to fire at their own brothers, as in the massacres perpetrated by the United States Army a few months ago against the helpless people of Panama of the most recent diabolical acts carried out by Yankee imperialism. Yet despite that that terrible attack against its will and its historic destiny, the people of Puerto Rico have preserved their culture, their Latin character, their national feelings, which in themselves gives proof to the implacable will for independence that exists among the masses of Latin American, of the Latin American island. So I think he, you know, he tries to, he lays out some of the material stuff, as I said, but he also lays out the ways that the U.S. has attempted to destroy what is local Puerto Rican culture um, by washing it down, watering it down, by trying to make it more Americanized um, by force. And this is certainly something that they attempted to do in Cuba as well. And that the Cuban revolution in many ways undid, and I would argue undid with some success. 
yeah, no, that was an interesting part that with uh, where it talked about Puerto Rico, and I just really thought that the the Spanish language with hinges on its ba- backbone to better bend before the United States soldier was just uh, really, I guess, poetic, and mm-hmm. that it it really kind of captured this kind of notion that uh, of a bending of the culture to fit into this anglicized uh, your, your English kind of American form that was that we've now know you know uh, 40 50 60 years on that then Puerto Rico would never gain the kind of autonomy or representation within the United States that uh, like it was I think in a lot of ways presented to Puerto Ricans that they would achieve (laughs) by kind of bending to the U.S. will. Mm -hmm. And there's certainly I mean there's a continuation of that right Um, to a degree that Many, and myself included, have argued that Puerto Rico was sort of the test case for what Trump did with regard to COVID, right? Um, And that includes the economic deprivation that started under the Obama administration that continued under Trump's administration um, through the, um, the, uh, oh my gosh, what is it? PROMESA bill, right? So PROMESA, to give a little background, is basically a bill that started in the United States that would create mass degrees of austerity on the island, defunding many, many of the island's resources. And then um, that would basically put hedge fund people in charge of the country. So kind of like what we saw happen in Detroit as well, when Detroit had to declare bankruptcy and then was taken over by like a manager who then like drove the city into the ground economically. Um, And so Puerto Rico was undergoing something like that when all these hurricanes hit. And then the U.S. offered little to no aid um, and then only made things worse. And there are still parts of the island that like didn't have electricity as of earlier this year or something like that, crazy like that. And then mm-hmm. COVID hit. And so there are all these these points of um, violence that are committed onto Puerto Rico, all with the supposed promise of Puerto Rico becoming more incorporated as part of the United States, where we definitely see that is not the case. Um, and that Puerto Rico is treated as if it's a separate country um, through the violence that the U.S. commits on it by using its islands as a prison camp. So like Guant- Guantanamo is one example, by using islands like Vieques for testing, like nuclear testing and whatnot, and weapons testing that's definitely harmed people and led to a mass degree of cancer on the, that island, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Like the list goes on and on. And the U.S. tried to do that with Cuba and was successful for many, many years until the revolution was like, no, we're not, <laughs> we're not going to play this game with you guys um, and beat them back and kick them out. And I think there's another section um, where we're on page seven, uh, where I'm reading from, where Che says that Fidel Castro said that the whole problem of coexistence among peoples was reduced to the undue appropriation of another's wealth. He said, quote, when this philosophy of despoilment disappears, the philosophy of war will have disappeared. And what mm-hmm. I get from that um, is, is that he's recognizing the fact that the U.S.'s relationship with these other countries, the violence that, is, that it is just the power that it exerts over these countries um, and the paternalism that it exerts is predominantly, you know, it, it mainly boils down to financial issues and wanting to have control of the economies of these places. Um, and one of the ways that the U.S. has definitely done that in Puerto Rico is by, you know, pushing, dumping, we say, 
dumping U.S. products, dumping U.S. media, dumping U.S. you know print and art and music culture, all of these things, and trying to make it as if the U.S. has a symbiotic relationship with Puerto Rico, when in actuality it's it's an economic relationship to the U.S.'s benefit um, by the U.S. taking in, for example, so many so many factory workers, domestic workers, et cetera. I mean, at one point, Puerto Ricans were really manning so many of the job positions in the United States that were lower level, lower level because they were basically used as a work colony. You know what I mean? Like it was a place to where the most extracted aspect of, this, of the, the island was the labor, human labor. So it's very important that we kind of connect these dots and I to, between past and present here. And I think we really, one of the things that's really cool about this document he's, is that a, a cool in a, in a literature sense, but not cool in a reality sense, is that there's so many things that he references in the past that are still happening. Um, and that it makes it an even more relatable document beyond it being very clear and well laid out. It also, we can see so many things that he's talking about that are still in the news today. And that makes me wonder, you know, how far do we still have to go to fight to get the basic equality that he's talking about achieving? Yeah, the I picked up on that as well about the, just the, the things that he mentions and especially a lot of the countries that he mentions the U.S. interfering with. We're interfering with till the, to this day and often and in some cases, you know, overthrowing democratically elected leaders, installing military dictatorships and doing uh, the worst of the worst kind of international behavior that you can imagine. And it's... Uh, I think one of the other things that I really captured from the whole feeling of the piece is the the <laughs> responsibility and kind of obligation that he feels individually and that he sees as a, a burden on Marxist and people in general of the assembly to speak out against these injustices, even if they're uncomfortable or even dangerous at times to, to speak out about. Yeah, because he mentions right after that, like right after what I had read, he talks about um, what happened in Congo and, you know, the, the murder of Patrice Mulumumba, um, and how many threats that these third world leaders are under by the United States um, and the need, as you said, to, excuse me, the need, as you said, to speak out, but also for the need for like other countries to support one another um, because they're all dealing with the same enemy, you know. Oh, the international solidarity throughout it was huge. Continue. Yeah. No, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, I was just, yeah, just the, that was another thing that I picked up on was just the, I could sense uh, from the text as a complete piece, the sincere and uh, significant emphasis that he was putting on international solidarity and the importance of uh, not just rhetorical support, but material support and that it's about the people of those places rather than uh, taking a particular political position about what the governments of those places uh, are are saying. And I think he goes on in detail, but I don't want to skip too far ahead. In order, one of the things that came up I thought was important and spoke to that kind of international solidarity and the the weight of the what he viewed as the UN's opportunity to be was about anti-proliferation and the importance of uh, stopping the proliferation of nuclear weapons. And but also in recognition, as you know, Cuba, there's Cuban Missile Crisis and variety of things that are going to transpire. And so there's uh, a situation in which Cuba recognizes that 
nuclear weapons are danger not just to individual uh, governments but to society as a whole but that they can't sign away their ability to defend themselves without first securing their sovereignty and dignity and that that they view the united states as asking for far too much in that regard in that like they're basically uh demanding that the cuban people uh, offer themselves as subjects to the united states rather than be seen as uh, another sovereign nation in which that has equal rights and should have equal access to justice and peace that's right and there's a there's a section that i mentioned earlier too when he's talking about like who's who's allowed to have peace and who's not, you know? And basically like he's reminding people from other countries, like don't put your weapons down yet, guys. Like don't give up what you have because this peace that they're allowed to have is not just something for them. Like we are allowed to have a, a part of that too, you know? And unfortunately the way the U.S. operates and we've seen this time and time again is that the second they take away the weapons, the you know major weapons from a country, they attack them. We've seen this so many times. And so, I, and, and then throughout the reason that they're building up their attack, they say, oh, well, they have nuclear weapons. They have nuclear weapons. Da, 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 da. Well, so do these other countries that are like also quote unquote first world countries and no one's attacking them. The U.S. is not attacking them. So it's clear that there's a double standard there about you know, who's allowed to have nuclear weapons and who's not, who, and it's so racist. Like it's mm-hmm. boil, it boils down to like, can we trust this person of color to like handle a weapon properly and not shoot at us or, you know, blow us up, even though the U.S. has been incredibly careless and violent with its weapons towards international communities. Like, I mean, and there's a revitalization here as an example. I was just gonna say there's a revitalization of race science about what uh, like shape skull represents trustworthy and stuff, but continue. <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So there's, you know, certainly there's a part of that that just keeps coming up throughout the piece about, and he says it in some cases, sometimes he literally says it's about racism and other times it's sort of inferred from the text. Um, but he talks, you know, when he, when he talks, when he lays out the countries that are doing what, when he talks about the regions that are doing what he mentions in a lot of ways, racism um, and and race science and whatnot. So like he has this section where he talks about um, Belgium and Congo and Germany. And he says, you know, I feel bad for the Belgians who suffered under, under Germany and some of the things they did to them. But then they turn right around and use the same um, racial violence that they had suffered for not, a, not not being quote unquote Aryan enough, they asserted that violence then on Africans who are who are black, you know, obviously in this case. And it's just interesting that that he's so clear about the ways that imperialists turn their backs on the people that they cause suffering to, the ways that they rely on one another, but at the same time can be each other's enemies too, and then still do not reflect on that and engage in the same types of violence elsewhere. And so it's, and it's something still that's going on, right? Like I can definitely name a couple empires that, that were once victimized or, you know, collectively victimized by some other countries, but then are now victimizing newer groups of people um, themselves. So it's just, it's, it's, it's unfortunate that this cycle continues unbroken despite the attempts made by people like Guevara to, to end them. 
Yeah, and one of the quotes, uh, going back to the Congo bit, that captured it, I think, was uh, Western civilization disguises under its showy front a scene of hyenas and jackals. That's the only name that can be applied to those who have gone to fulfill humanita- humanitarian tasks in the Congo. And it's just like, yeah, that, that's uh, you can use that to describe essentially most humanitarian, if not all humanitarian missions from the United States from then on. Like, yeah. as cover for essentially corporate jackals to go pick the bones of people that they, uh, you know, oppress and murder and like terrorize. For sure. There's also, you know, one of the things I was I was fascinated by is like who he how he calls people out, if you will. I mean, to use a contemporary phrase for a very long-standing set of problems he's talking about, but um, the kind of I think now the way he talks in this art in this uh, speech, people would call it cancel culture or like call out <laughs> culture, you know, which is so ridiculous because he's like a you know very like a world renowned, famous, and incredibly impactful socialist leader. But um, nowadays we're seeing so many socialists be like, oh, but don't don't call out racists, don't call out you know whomever, <laughs> don't don't talk about racism, and like this whole piece is like full of references to racism and like the way imperialism is racist and the way it sort of reasserts these like micro acts of racism on a global scale, like it makes it more macro. Um, And it's just really interesting to me. I think when you start to look at, you know, and I'm not saying all, but like many non-European leftist thought, you start to see there is a reference and attention to um, the kind of violence that's enacted specifically on people of color and specifically on third world countries and indigenous people and film, you know what I mean? Like all these groups that are marginalized by virtue of not being European and not being white. And, and it's just fascinating to me that, like I said, if, if he were saying this, if Malcolm X or Martin Luther King were saying many of the things that we now often quote them for in the present, they would be called out by, by social Democrats in some cases of being, uh, and I, I, I think they're ultimately liberals, right? They're, they're people who are parading as social Democrats who are actually just liberals who are confused or conservatives in some cases who are confused or trying to market themselves as something other than what they are. But they would call out these men and women and the people who've made these really impactful points in the past as engaging in <clears throat> quote unquote cancel culture um, simply because they're bringing up race or bringing up racism in their critique of uh imperialism and capitalism and you know war one of the things that i picked up on was mention of the organization of american states which we Mm -hmm. sort of alluded to earlier with bolivia as well and like this is an organization that he identified as uh, you know basically a, a tool of u.s empire in order to ostracize cuba from the international community and that's essentially what we see the OAS still acting as, as a tool of the U.S. empire to ostracize countries in Latin South America that don't essentially bend the knee to the United States. And it's, I just found it uh, enlightening just to see it, see them called out by name uh, so long ago. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. I mean, they, they, they were started under this for this purpose, right? That's the, that's the, the part that's so interesting about OAS because the way people talk about OAS nowadays it's like oh it's such a like upstanding organization that like at least in mainstream outlets right not not on the left obviously but um in some mainstream 
journalists or news outlets, they they speak of the OAS as this like hallowed institution that has always done right by Latin America, whatever. And literally from the jump, from inception, it has been about asserting U.S. control over the region and over their sovereignty, um, those countries' individual sovereignty, and like demanding, making demands of people that are that don't line up with reality, to be honest, and that are just to create chaos, to sow chaos and result in a change of hands of power, change of power um, in a way that often, if not always, hurts the local people. You know, I mean, that that coup in Bolivia has just been, and the attempted coups in Venezuela, the resulting sanctions in Venezuela, all of these forms of violence have just been incredibly devastating to the people in that country. And it's it's frustrating because the, the guys is always like, we want to help the indigenous and black members of this society and blah, blah, blah. But then they end up actually doing incredible harm to them by virtue, as I said, of sanctions and, and violence in this country's violent overthrows of, of governments that are democratically elected. Yeah, it is interesting that you mentioned just how like it, it, the OAS, like many of these types of institutions that came up, uh, you know, in the forties, maybe in the early 1900s or sometimes like something like even Department of Homeland Security that came up just in the 2000s. It's just people, we get these ideas that this is how it's always been. And I think that there's an aspect to just like how it, it, people encounter in their everyday life of, you know, however you grew up in your home, at some point you realize that's not how it's like in everybody's home. And like, that I think the United States has a case of that where we assume a lot of things that ex- how they are in the United States is just how it is everywhere in the world and is how it's always been. And that's simply mm-hmm. not the case. You know, it's like one of the ones that I think a lot of people uh, can just kind of comprehend and relate to or understand is the genderization of color, pink and blue. And that that is something that just recently happened in the 70s is like go back mm-hmm. to the, even before the 60s is like pink and blue were not gendered colors. Right. <laughs> <laughs> no, they weren't. And now they still, I mean, side note on that, because of like baby stuff, you know, you often see in ads for baby baby clothing, like gender neutral, and it'll be like yellow, brown, green. But I'm like, why isn't pink gender neutral? Like, so what if it's pink? Why? Why is like, usually what happens is colors that are associated typically nowadays with boys are considered gender neutral, but pink or red or purple which are girl colors, quote unquote, are not considered gender neutral, you know? And like at the end of the day, the baby's going to poop on it, spit up on it anyway. So it doesn't really matter what they wear. Like (laughs) it doesn't, especially now that we're in quarantine all the time too. Like baby could be hanging out in a trash can as long as she's warm and comfortable. doesn't matter. (laughs) And it just, it shows to your earlier point about just how easy it is to absorb these kind of hegemonic concepts and ideas and not even realize it. And you can even go, like you can get through much of your life without ever having to confront them. And mm-hmm. so like, or analyze them. And so like, they get very well ingrained long before, like, before you can even approach questioning them. And so it, it, if you can imagine it with, or you can see it with things like, you know, gendered colors, you can imagine what that's like with the imperialist uh, agenda of the United States and how, how much of that can be ingrained and absorbed into our framing of everything about the world. And one of the things that throughout the this whole reading revolution and left POC project that in my engagement with it is just realizing how much of the story had been left out. And this is uh, just this piece in particular is just another piece of that, of mm-hmm. like the story that I just didn't know and know. And the more I've realized that it was intentionally obscured from me. On that note, it reminds me um, of this idea of like, you know, compassionate 
imperialism or like, um, you know, what do they call it? Uh, oh man, it's a type of inter, like a conscious interventionism or something like that. I'm blanking on the expression right now. Um, but it's something that Samantha Power uh, really talked about all the time. She, Samantha Power was the UN rep for Obama. Um, and she recently wrote a book, it's like Compassionate Interventionism or something. You, you, here we go, humanitarian interventionism. That's the word I was looking for. Um, and this idea that you can invade a country, destroy that country, supposedly on behalf of say, ethnic minorities in that country or women in that country or fill in the blank, uh, to quote unquote free them from their leader that again they democratically elected, but that aside, um, you know, is it's something that's become the norm, and so that's what further complicates talking about um, you know imperialism in our in this day and age because oftentimes imperialism is reframed as something that's beneficial to the receiving population that's being attacked, and I see something similar happening with regard to policing, with regard to um, prosecutorial records and whatnot. Like they're like, oh, but this person is a is a progressive prosecutor, or this is a diverse police force, or this is a you know a gender uh, a gender equal uh, boardroom, you know, they do all these things to sort of incorporate the language of social justice, the practice of social justice in a way that unfortunately is weaponized towards people who could benefit under normal circumstances from, from these moves towards equality, but instead it's weaponized and used against us as a means of kind of deflecting from blame and, and rerouting, um, our otherwise legitimate anger because we get we get fooled temporarily. So the president's black, so he can't be violent towards Africans or black people. Or the CEO is a woman, so like, how is he or how is she, you know, engaging in in practices that harm victims of sexual harassment on the job or whatever? You know, we have to kind of start to. I think sometimes people go overboard. Sorry, baby. <laughs> She's right. They do go overboard. But I think sometimes people go overboard in the sense that they want to get rid of all diversity measures altogether. Um, and instead, I think what we need to do is bring those things back to their original purpose and not see them and not, not allow them to be reduced to something that's purely for, um, you know, for projection, for, for sort of image um, yeah. and not the real purpose. I think there's a parallel to the OAS in that. Uh, from my understanding is it essentially functions as uh, certain people, certain influential people from these countries are selected out and basically bribed in order to bend the will of their nation to the U S interests uh, or in the OAS's influence on Latin America and South America towards U S interests. And I think that we see a similar thing happen at the individual and in the kind of systemic level where, uh, both people from marginalized communities and people from outside, but especially people from marginalized communities are lifted up in order to be a mouthpiece for mm -hmm. empire and in exchange are rewarded somewhat handsomely, at least better than their, their, their ethnic or cultural peers. But it's not, uh, it's not, it's still not equitable to what the, the white spokespeople are getting paid for the same message and usually doing a poorer job of it and don't carry the benefit of, essentially placating the the mass of people that this person superficially represents. Mm -hmm. I think there's also, um, if you go to page 20, 
Um, and so my apologies too, if I'm skipping too far ahead, please feel free to cite anything you want throughout the text, no matter what page it's on. So don't, don't see this as a, a forced jump ahead. Mm -hmm. um, but he talks, Che talks a bit about, um, again, you know, the violence that the U.S. commits and how it's incredibly racist. <laughs> Basically, he's very clear about this, um, just to put it out there once more. Um, but it builds a, a bit on what we were just talking about um, and how there's this sort of representative, um, these are, they're like gatekeepers um, from plucked from the oppressed group that are supposed to be supporting of us. And in actuality, they're just sort of reifying the harm that the U.S. is committing. Um, so he says, quote, uh, the imperialists are preparing to repress the peoples of America and are setting up an international network of crime. The United States interfered in America while invoking the, quote, defense of free institutions. The time will come when this assembly will acquire greater maturity and demand guarantees from the United States government for the lives of the Negro and Latin American population who reside in that country, most of whom are native born or naturalized U.S. citizens, which is like about a little bit what we were talking about earlier. Um, and then he says, quote, how can they presume to be the guardians of liberty when they kill their own children? Sorry, my own child is screaming right now. How can they presume to be the guardians of liberty when they kill their own children and discriminate daily against people because of the color of their skin? When they are not only free them, when, sorry, when they not only free the murderers of colored people, but even protect them while punishing the colored population because they demand their legitimate rights as free men. I mean, it's in this case, he's clearly talking about police, um, but and, and white supremacist violence. But as we said earlier, right before I, I quoted him, this is what happens on the international scale, right? This is how, this is like a micro, the micro and macro of US domestic policy and inter, even interpersonal relations between uh, black and white, poor and rich, et cetera, et cetera. And then the, versus the way that the US plays out on the, the US as, you know, um, enacts its policies on the international stage. It's a, what we see on the day-to-day -day is a microcosm of the macro, uh, macrocosm? Is that a word? Macrocosm? I feel like it is. Okay. <laughs> I'm tired and I'm old. Uh, so yeah, but it's, it's the macrocosm that, that he's, he's, I guess what I think is fascinating is he's creating, he's setting up sort of a parallel structure, right? To talk about both, to be critical of both. And he's saying, you know, you guys are basically turning the rest of the world into what, you do in your own country. You're trying to make the rest of the world adhere to that. And unfortunately, part of that process is not just the cultural destruction, but also the like literal and material destruction of a people on the basis of these sort of white supremacist, hyper-capitalist ideas. And so I, I really, I don't know, I just, I think it's, I think it's a text that is like, it feels, I know I say this about so many of the things we read, but I feel like it's very timely. Um, especially as we're kind of grappling with all of these issues on the international stage. I mean, literally, as I said, while we're still dealing with COVID, while they're still not giving any aid to the American people, they're definitely still engaging in international violence. So Pompeo just went down to Guyana a few weeks ago to continue his antagonism against Venezuela and arguably against Cuba. You know, these things are still going on. So they still somehow have money to, to fund this crap, but they don't have any money to give us. And I'm just wondering, again, as I said in the beginning, what is this idea of them, they're fighting on our behalf? Where's my check 
if you're gonna if you're gonna go kill people in my name, at least give me a benefit from it, right? We're not even getting that. So like, what is not to say that that would legitimize it, but my point is that the rhetoric is empty, right? It's a lie. Everything is built on a lie. Just like we're we are told that black people, indigenous people, Latinos, whomever are inferior. We're told this every single day through our society, through our culture, through so many things. The same thing happens on the international stage with regard to the way America treats other countries that are not European. And people are sick of it. And and it's destructive. It's harmful. And we see that every day when more and more people come to the shores of this country seeking refuge from the governments that we inserted violently through coups and through deprivation and through so many things. It's just like one cycle after another, after another, and it just feels so endless. And so I appreciate his call to arms for people in the third world to come together and say, look, screw that. We don't need America, right? We got you. Like Cuba will help you. Other countries that just began their freedom will help you. Don't put all of your trust in this government that's actively harming you. And instead let's form some sort of solidarity amongst ourselves. And then we could be more powerful than the U.S. And I think we're still we're, people are still trying to work through that and wrap their heads around that. And unfortunately, so many of the leaders of these third world states now are puppets of the U.S. And the U.S. did that intentionally. They know what they're doing. They know what they did. And so now it's very difficult for these countries to come together precisely because they're fascists that are running them that have a U.S. stamp on their back. You know, it's frustrating. No, as, as you mentioned, the parallels between the international and domestic, uh, one of the ones that leaps out to me in context of this text is how we the, the perception is that the U.S. occupies these countries to protect the people from either themselves or some other government or whatever, just as the uh, police occupy black neighborhoods to protect black people from other people in the neighborhood, but then they don't actually do that. They mm-hmm. don't actually like one of the things that is uh, I've, I, in digging in I've realized is that the closure cases for police departments in predominantly black areas among like uh, the high crime areas where they're presumably occupying to reduce the crime is incredibly horrifically bad like they don't close these cases and one of the things that I've learned from uh, social science is that while you know we tend to go for stricter or uh, more harsher penalties that doesn't actually the science doesn't bear out that it impacts like that reduces crime what reduces crime is being held accountable and being caught and so not closing all of these cases in these black neighborhoods that they're occupying results in the perpetuation of the crime that they're allegedly there to stop and so like what you end up having is just them confronting uh, particular instances in the moment and exacerbating the systemic issues at the same time. And so that's what you see in the U.S. as well, or with the foreign policy as well, and that while that they're supposedly, you know, we're in Iraq or we're in Afghanistan or wherever to protect ourselves, but really we're just exacerbating the, the circumstances that led to uh, the perception that these places were a threat to us in the first place, to, to whatever degree they may have been or not been. Yeah, absolutely. There's it's It's completely that way, and I think it's... I don't know. It's, it's, I, I don't want to say it's getting worse. Cause I feel like I end every episode like that. I'm like, it's getting worse over here. Like, what are we going to do? Um, but I think that it, it is intensifying insofar as like gentrification is concerned. And then I don't know if, I mean, in some ways you could compare um, the way the U S operates in terms of its markets as a form of gentrification too. So like 
Although there is literal gentrification happening when we talk about the expat community, right? Which we should have like a separate episode on tourism and expat uh, mm. migration and stuff like that because it's it's nuts how similar it is. Like whenever I watch um, House Hunters International, I want to scream because it's the same kind of language of like, oh, you know, there was no one living here and we decided to renovate this house or like, you know, making all the prices go up in the in literally in the country, right? In major cities in that country and whatnot, taking away homes from the people who live there and have lived there their whole lives for generations, et cetera, et cetera. Pollution, all of that, like misuse of, of properties and misuse of land. And there are a lot of parallels between U.S. migration abroad and gentrification within the United States. Um, but the reason I bring that up is because what you see happen and this also happens on the international stage, is there's a, a kind of invasion by police to pacify the, <laughs> the local population first. Um, this is also literally the term that they use in Brazil. So they call a lot of, they call police um, invasions of poor, predominantly black neighborhoods as pacification units. Like these unit, these groups of mm. police are called pacification units, okay? So they're called the UPP. Um, and you see them a lot in Rio and whatnot. And they, they literally have been charged, uh, you know, with um, like un undocumented, I should say, they've been documented for shooting children, breaking up things like the slightest things like birthday parties, church groups coming together, etc. just like basic activities on a daily basis in the favelas. They will break them up and cite as cite them as some sort of oh we we thought it was gang activity or we thought and it reminds me so much of what you hear with regard to like uh, droning so drone strikes that the U.S. will carry out and then they'll realize that it was a wedding or it was a, a mosque or it was a school or it was a church or a hospital or whatever and then they're like oh my bad you know, and at the same time, they've committed this violence and wiped out whole communities this way. And so at the local level in the United States, to kind of get back to the US, what we see is in many cases, before a neighborhood is fully gentrified, like where all the poor Black people or poor Latinos or whomever have been moved out, forced out by virtue of, you know, buying up their homes and in some cases, just plain old evicting them, shutting down their apartment buildings and turning them into high-rise condos. Um, when that's done, often right beforehand, there is an intense police presence. You see more checkpoints. You see more police. You see a lot of stop and frisk. This is what happened in New York. You know, you, the way you know a neighborhood is going to about to change, is on the verge of change, is not not just by seeing more white people, but also by seeing an increase in policing. And that policing, as you and I have both said, and as many activists have said, well before us, is that it's not there to protect. The local residents. It's there to antagonize the local residents, to make them move out, to make them afraid, to make them put the, to pacify them, to put them down, so that way they can clear the area for the wealthier people to move in, for white people to move in, you know, and often wealthier white people to be more specific to move in. And this is what they do on the international stage as well. If you look at like places like Colombia, perfect example of this. Vietnam, something similar happened. So now everyone and their mother is trying to move to Vietnam. Everyone and their mother was trying to move to certain parts of Mexico a little while ago. Um, everyone and their mother was trying to move to, um, you know, parts of, uh, why did it just blank? I just forgot the other countries I mentioned, but they try to move to these countries where the U.S. has enacted pretty direct violence. And it's as if, you know, to clear out the land, to take the land um, on the basis of, of, 
of supposedly fixing other things. So like the drug war, for example, is a very clear example of this. Let's clear out all of Northern Mexico on the basis of drug wars. And now half of Northern Mexico is like, it's, it's, you know, white retirees from the United States living there. It's not a coincidence. And uh, like, I, I reluctantly use pop culture references here, but like RoboCop was kind <laughs> of about this. I mean, the part mm-hmm. of the, like the, the, the preceding step to that gentrification is the criminalization and the like driving down of property values of the people that are there so that then the people that are coming in to gentrify are also getting a swing and deal on the property because it's been mm-hmm. artificially driven down because of a the type of antagonization that you described as well as uh, the lack of accountability for crimes that they're supposedly policing while they're there so that uh, the the overall value of the property is driven down and in particularly this is actually applicable to our current conditions even with the robocop thing with uh, detroit and michigan in general where they're going to have access to some of the only uh fresh water large fresh water reservoirs uh as we uh, approach impending climate catastrophe and so seeing like seeing what's happening we're seeing it in real time we've had Historic. We have Che here talking about it. We have pop culture references. We can see it. It's just, are we going to react? And one of the things, going a little bit back in the text, that I thought was kind of uh, apt, uh, and it talks a little bit, it kind of re- relates to this specifically, but also just the text generally, was a quote about where he says, although we reject the, any attempt to attribute to us interference in the inner, internal affairs of other countries, we cannot deny that we sympathize with those people who strive for their freedom and must fulfill obligation of our government and people to state clearly and categorically to the world that we morally support and feel as one with people everywhere who struggle to make reality of the rights of full sovereignty proclaimed in the United Nations Charter. And part of the Part of that was because the United States was uh, accusing Cuba and Che and Castro of fomenting revolution and fomenting uh, like disorder and dissent throughout Latin America. And part of what this uh, speech kind of entailed was uh, saying, no, that's that's not it. We, we do support these uh, the peoples, but we we live in a reality where we can see it's the united states that's intervening it's like mm-hmm. and he lists off it's like cuba knows this truth venezuela nicaragua central america in general mexico haiti san domingo and it's like panama endless, endless list, An endless list. <laughs> colombia is like is, is we in the u.s is more or less in in many of these cases openly interfering Mm -hmm. it's like it's not even subversively doing these things it's openly sponsoring you know death squads from pinochet and chile it's you know it's openly doing these types of things and it's just like it's uh it that they have the audacity to accuse uh, a little island nation of cuba of fomenting revolution he he also goes on to say that essentially is like we can't and i got some of this from the interview from face nation which i'll make sure to include so that, that you know we can't export revolution it's like it's it's your imperialist empire which creates the conditions and and that's the only like i can't do i can't go to a country and create the conditions for revolution it takes imperialism to do that Mm. yes indeed it does um the other thing i just wanted to point out there's one more part uh and then i'm done on my end but um feel free to add more after this but one thing that i thought was an interesting point that goes back slightly to what we were talking about with police 
And something I want to expound upon here is he says, quote, we must point out that news of the training of mercenaries at different places in the Caribbean and the participation of the United States government in such acts is news that appears openly in United States newspapers. That's something that I, I bring that up just because you just mentioned like how they're openly doing these things. Right. Um, and so mm-hmm. he's talking about how it's, it's a very open and upfront and very clear use of foreign land to train their military to then enact violence upon people in foreign lands. And we see that with police as well. So like this type of violence, it's, it's all a circle. Um, so many police are former military and many um, military trainees are, um, you know, using, or the military is using the police as um, kind of like, uh, like consumer testers, if you will, you know, like the people who get early samples of things before they go on the market. That's kind of what's happening in this cycle of violence through weapons. So weapons are tested on people abroad, on people here in poor neighborhoods, and then recycled. It's like one big, like I said, one big circle. Um, and and that the same thing goes for using foreign land as military training grounds, military testing grounds um, for equipments, weapons, etc. And it just I don't know, I, I, I don't know how we break that cycle. And I think there have been attempts because we've seen this with regard to the prison population as well with, with imprisonment and how prisons operate, um, the experiments that they perform on prisoners, the violence that they perform on prisoners, whether it's you know gynecological violence, like removing uteruses, which is something that's come up recently. So sterilization is one way to do it, um, a, gen, a form of genocide. Another way to do it is by using um, experimental medication. We've seen that done as well on prisoners in both the domestic case and at the border. So it, it's interesting that we've seen very similar practices done on, um, you know, prisoners of war, on prisoners in this country, on detainees at the border. All of the practices are similar. It's not as if they're all that different, right? Um, many of the things that they do, the psychotropic meds, the, the gynecological violence, um, the food deprivation and poisoning that way, um, lack of access to clean water, the lead in the water, lead in the in the rooms, you know, just so many, so many, so many forms of environmental, physical, and material violence being committed to these on these people, and it just cycles out to be something that's then done in another place and then comes back. It just boomerangs. You know what I'm saying? So it's it's very. Um, it's very frustrating because I think we've we've seen attempts of people to try to break this up. So I remember, of like a God, I don't know how many a year ago, maybe two years ago at this point, there was a protest on um, one of the detain like the detention centers, the concentration camps, that a man led and he was murdered in the process. He was an anarchist, if I'm not mistaken, elderly man too. So it's not like he was young. He was an older man who attempted to like rush one of the officers or something like that. And he was killed in the process or he tried to blow it up. I can't remember the, the details. I'll go back and try to find this if Google cooperates, which we know <laughs> it won't, um, to put in the show notes. But there was a case like this a few years ago. And we see it again with like um, some of the the violence. In this case, it is violence, but it's retributive violence that's happening on the streets and some of these protests where protesters are having to fight white supremacists and in some cases kill white supremacists to protect themselves. This is, um, you know, 
it's perhaps the beginnings of what I see as what's going to have to be the, the, the final step for really fighting back. But I don't know what that looks like. And it's certainly not something that we're at will to speak about, um, you know, in a podcast, for God's sakes. But, you know, especially <laughs> considering the environment we live in, right, where people are taking any bit of political speech and turning it into uh, a threat of violence towards the president or towards white people or whomever. But I think that there there's a degree to which we have to get real about what's happening and recognize that, unfortunately, a podcast is not going to solve uh, this problem. An article is not going to solve this problem. A tweet is not going to solve this problem. And we we may have to come to terms with the fact that despite all the the accolades that nonviolent protest gets, it's not the end all be all to change. Not for something like this. Not for the enemy we're up against. No, no. And uh, I'm reminded of Hampton is that we're up against some imperialist warmongers that don't know peace. They don't even they don't know what the what it means. They they have no conception mm-hmm. of peace. And it's like we're gonna have to struggle with them in order to help help us all uh, achieve that peace. And I from the piece, kind of my final thoughts uh, were like one that like revolutionary internationalism is is not pacifism and is not you know accepting a new global hegemon that isn't the united states that's not what it this is not what it's about and so like i know that sometimes that that becomes like a concern of people when they're dealing with so-called tankies and so on and so forth that they're just uh, (laughs) paving the way for a new uh imperialist uh kind of hegemonic uh, regime with uh that's just not the u.s and that is were that even to be the case that is not representative of the type of struggle that i think uh people are articulating and so Mm -hmm. like uh whether that's a concern that has legitimacy that should be made that people should be aware of is one thing, whether that's a a place of criticism that Western white Americans should be making isn't completely another one in my opinion. I guess (laughs) (laughs) we have like, we have enough problems of our own to deal with that. Once we've eliminated the, you know, United States imperialist agenda, then we can worry about what the other agendas are. And we can safely presume that the communists in those countries and the socialists in those countries are also concerned with those issues and probably have a much better kind of understanding and grasp and context of those issues than we do over here inundated with constant propaganda that is explicitly designed to make us think and feel the things that some of these Western leftists are expressing when concerns about uh, other powers pop up. Anyway, uh, <laughs> sorry about that. Right? Uh, no, the other thing, <laughs> the and like that. I think what I read in some of this is a kind of revolutionary hope, a revolutionary inevitability in that the the conditions are necessarily brought about by the contradictions of imperialism and capitalism they also necessarily bring with them the conditions for revolutionary struggle that you can't maintain an imperialist capitalist empire without creating the conditions for revolutionary struggle. And so Mm -hmm. it's just upon us revolutionaries to seize on those opportunities and, and when they arrive and not try to force them per se, like I'm not an accelerationist or anything, but, uh, but to recognize when they're happening and to seize on those opportunities. And then I guess, lastly, it's just that, I know for me and I'm sure for others, it's easy to get kind of overwhelmed by the like overwhelmed, like the kind of ominous and vast nature of revolutionary politics and what that means to 
our lives individually and what that means to the people that we care about around us and what that means to people around the world that are suffering under uh, imperialism and capitalism and so forth. Uh, but uh, I'm reminded, you know, it's like uh, Hampton and MLK and others have talked about kind of a proverbial mountaintop. And I'm just reminded that, you know, you get there one step at a time and mm-hmm. you, you we're not going to get dropped off at the mountaintop. The U.S. Mili- <laughs> military, <Airlift>. yeah, <laughs> they're not going to airlift us to the top of the mountain. It's going to be one step at a time. And so while that doesn't mean that we take incremental, uh, you know, kind of reform as, you know, acceptable and so on and so forth, but it does mean that it's going to be one step at a time that we're going to progress through this and that that can that's going to encompass non reformist reforms it's going to encompass revolutionary struggles it's going to encompass sometimes violence like we have a labor history in the united states that we can reference where people were beat to death in the streets for wanting weekends or 40-hour work weeks or to not be Mm. chained into buildings and burned alive like they had to fight to the death for those things and there were plenty of one percenters that were willing to pay the rest of the population that maybe was a fence sitter or didn't like something that was said to them by somebody that worked at a factory one time and is more than willing to pick up a club or a gun and and beat and kill the people that are fighting for the basic worker basic worker rights that even mm. parts of rest of the parts of the rest of the world had recognized in the united states was behind it and this is so like the idea that we're going to uh impede and stop the u.s's imperialist agenda without them violently resisting seems uh naive yes naive is a good word for it and i certainly appreciate the the words from people like Che Guevara and others whom we've read, um, who basically are very clear that that's not always going to be the answer. That's certainly a part of the process um, and definitely a way to influence people and get them on board with you. But at the end of the day, a struggle is a struggle and it's not going to take place just, you know, through these incredibly passive means. That's not how struggle works <laughs> it's yeah. just not the even revolutionaries leave open the opportunity that if these things could be accomplished without those things we happily and and, and warmly receive those receive right. that right. <laughs> like we, we don't would... want our people to die we don't want yeah, more of our people to die why would we want that you know we want things to happen peacefully but the reality is as, as we know and this is a very old phrase common we've heard it over and over but like power doesn't concede without a fight like it's just not going to happen so yeah, it's, it's not a sadomasochistic kind of thing where we want no. to inflict harm on ourselves or masochism, <laughs> right. where we want to harm other people. We want peace. We right. just understand what it's going to take to get it. Yes. And on that note, I need to get some sleep. Um, Absolutely. <laughs> or I'm going to be at war with myself tomorrow. But, uh, <laughs> but I really appreciate you coming on again, as always, as co-host and fellow hosts in particular of Reading Revolution, the sub-series of Left Pocket Project, where we read and discuss the work written by and and or that inspired leftists of color. Uh, So thanks again, as always, Richard. You're the best. And thank you. uh, Thank you you all for listening. And be sure to check out our Patreon page, which is patreon.com slash leftpoc, which is where you can get this reading that we discussed today, as well as many other things, all for free because we don't believe in paywalls for the democratization of education and dialogue and discussion. Uh, We want this process to be open for the public always. So feel free to go there and check out our content. And if you're feeling generous, give us a dollar or more or more or more. I can't speak today. (laughs) Give (laughs) Give us a dollar or more per month. 
uh, to help us out. And we just wanted to say as a side note, or as a relevant note, it's not a side note. I say side note out of habit, but it's not a side note. It's an important, real relevant note. Uh, thanks again to all of our donors. Lately, we've gotten a big uptick in our Patreon patrons. So thanks for all the comrades out there who've donated a dollar or more uh, each month to the Left Pocket Project. We really appreciate you. And we just want you to know that we're putting your dollars to good use. Um, so they go, as I mentioned before, to web storage, to supporting other podcasters on the left who are often underserved. I mean, I just want to say like a lot of podcasts that are really great out there, people are sleeping on or don't donate to, and they're donating to all these big name podcasts that already make a bajillion dollars. Take a dollar from that and donate it to us or podcasts like us. So we do that. We take some of our funding um, and we donate it right back into other podcasts. We also um, are always sure to remunerate our guests and to also make a donation to the organization of their choice. We've got some great orgs that have received funding from us um, to keep going, especially amid these difficult times, as people keep saying, but they are truly difficult. Um, and especially for NGOs and other organizations that help people who are not getting government aid right now and definitely need the support. So we really appreciate what you are able to give because we then take that and give it back to the community. Um, so yeah, check it out. Also check us out on social media. Richard um, will be heading up an actual specific Reading Revolution Twitter page in just a little bit. We're going to post more information about that as it becomes available, but I'm looking forward to it. So we'll have it. it Reading Revolution is going to have its own Twitter uh, account, which is going to be amazing. And of course, also Left POC will still exist, uh, but we'll be retweeting one another sometimes. And then uh, the last thing I just wanted to say, and of course, Richard, feel free to add whatever you'd like at the end here. Um, but I just, again, like, please take care of yourselves. Please be as safe as humanly possible. Social distance, wear your masks, wear 20 masks. I don't care what you got to do. Just do whatever you need to do to protect yourself and stay ahead of this government. We recognize that they are not being transparent about a lot of things that are happening and that we really need to just be 20 steps ahead um, to keep to keep our health. Um, so please do that. We know that a lot of our listeners are working class, many of them working class people of color who are incredibly vulnerable to many of the things that are happening right now um, by virtue of economic circumstance. And we just don't want to have any more victims. Um, so please do what you can uh, to protect yourself. Uh, I just say, uh, quote one of my other favorite Shakurs, uh, keep your head up. <laughs> oh, sorry, I laughed in the middle of that. But yes, agree, Richard. Agree. <laughs> Absolutely. We have to have some hope in there somewhere. Mm-hmm. All right. Thanks, y'all. Thanks. And thank you for listening to the Left Pocket Project podcast. As per usual, you can find us on social media, uh, Twitter, Facebook, Reddit, although we, we're not that great with the Reddit, uh, but we're definitely there. You can also check us out, most importantly, on Patreon, and that's patreon.com slash leftpoc, where you'll find, you'll, you will find all of our episodes, um, our readings that we do, and lots of other goodies, completely for free and open to the public uh, with no paywalls. The last thing, um, just as a reminder to definitely check us out, of course, wherever you get your podcasts, tell a friend, tell a family member, and uh, have a good one. Stay safe.